Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also grab the show on Facebook as well. Find the show on Facebook as well. And we ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab, find all the fine NR shows, including this one. Patreon.com slash political beats. That's where you go to support the program. We ask you and you deliver. Help the show stay ad-free as it is right now. We have entry-level for voting privileges and showing support and a few bonus items now and then. Mid-level for early access to all our shows and at a higher audio quality. And our upper-level bestest friends, early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content shows, remastered episodes, playlists, and more, all at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Now the part of the program where we thank some of our supporters via Patreon, Mark Stretch, Mike, Steve, Mark Leach, another Mike, former guest Jeff DeFore is on board, also Gregory Jewell, Ethan Harema, John Boland, Ron Schiffman, and Devin Rossler. Thank all of you for supporting us over at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. We can't do the show without you. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing fine, Scott. You know, some people might say my life is in a rut, but I'm quite happy with what I got. People might say I should strive for more, but I'm so happy I can't see the point. Jeff, doing well. Yeah, something's happening here today, man. Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. Our guest on today's episode, a historian and columnist, used to be a musician, that's two of the three of us. Uh, he's a contributor to the Wall Street Journal and a columnist for the Washington Examiner and the Jewish Chronicle. Find him on Twitter at Dr. Dominic Green. That's D-R, Dominic Green. And rightfully so, he is Dominic Green. Dominic, thanks so much for joining us. Scott, Jeff, thank you. And, and, and as you know, the public wants what the public gets. But <laughs> I don't get what this society wants. <laughs> Before we get to our, our vaunted band today, Dominic, take a few minutes and uh, tell us about, about your journey, what you do now, and where you've been in the industry. Well, I come from a family of jazz musicians, uh, and so I am actually uh, the one who ran away from the circus and, and almost got a respectable job. Um, I uh, worked as a musician for many years, playing jazz and soul and blues, and a lot of the work I did falls under the umbrella of what people called at the time acid jazz Um which, as we'll probably find out later on, is in many ways uh, descended from what Paul Weller did. And so mm-hmm. I'm part of a generation of musicians in England who've been profoundly influenced, uh, both directly and indirectly, by Paul Weller. And we get to our band for today, a band that Jeff has championed for quite a long time on this show, on exclusive content episodes to me personally and Twitter, uh, direct messages, and we finally get a chance to cover today The Jam. Non-stop dancing all episode long, my friends. Dominic, we turn the floor back over to you to tell us how you found out about the jam, why you love their music, and why anyone else should care about this stuff. Well, firstly, I had no choice because the jam were huge in England. Uh, If you were around in the late 70s, early 80s, they were really the leading singles band of the day. uh, And they had a very wide appeal. It wasn't just, you know, people who liked punk or indie or mod music or something like that who liked it their singles were on a streak of number ones for about three years 
Uh, and or everyone I know really used to just wait until their tune came on the radio when you listen to that week's chart. As uh, you know, I grew older, I realized actually that they came from uh, a long-running musical tradition in Britain, which was that of mod music. Um, and so you really, in order to say where they came from, that's a big part of who they were. Jeff, I guess the other, the other question I'd ask you before we go is what is it, you know, why does this band matter? Because this is something I'm going to get into in, in, in a way that it's harder for me to explain to Americans than it might be for you to explain to Brits. Why do they hang on so much? Well, firstly, the tunes are just excellent tunes. Uh, they stand alone. This is uh, proven by the fact that uh, decades after uh, the, the social context they were written in, those songs right. still have massive appeal, certainly in Britain. And every now and then it's true. I meet somebody in the US who also uh, really gets them. Um, there was a lot of debate around the at the time about whether the Jam were a real punk band. And like most punk bands, they weren't really a real one even if they were part of something that was called punk. Um, but it appeals deeply, I think, because it's, it's from a, a long-running English tradition, which is in a way much wider than music. When, you, when you're talking about the appeal of the, of the, the jam, it, it, you're talking about something like the appeal, say, of the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and I think Paul Weller, who was literally a, a one-man band when it came to the songwriting, Paul Weller is easily... Uh, the leading songwriter of his generation and what was a very talented uh, generation in Britain. I uh, come to the jam completely foreignly. And I guess, Scott, you'll go last since you're the guy who's like, well, I heard about him from all these other people. Talking about him. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I, I mean, but uh, the jam for me were a rumor uh, when I was a child and went all the way in through high school. I just see their name in magazines. I was becoming more and more anglophiliac in my tastes. You know, I start with the Beatles. And then, of course, where do you go with the Beatles? The obvious places as a high schooler in the 90s, the Who, the Stones. You know, you, you explore these nooks and crannies, and then you get to the 70s. And, well, there's the decay of the 60s rock bands, and then there's punk. There's punk that emerges like a Athena just springing out of the head of Zeus. We know now it wasn't anything like that at all. But it seemed like this sudden rebirth of what the rock aesthetic was like, and it came out of England, of all places. And then... Everybody would tell me, oh, it's the Sex Pistols. It's the Clash. I love those bands. But at the end of the day, I found myself more of a post-punk guy than, than anything else. So, like, you know, Give Me Wire, Magazine, Echo and the Bunnymen. But of those original punk bands, the one that sang to me the most, and maybe because it was the hardest for me to get at first, was the jam.
Jam at first to me were one CD called Snap. Actually, it was Compact Snap. It was the greatest hits that we'll talk about when we get to the end of this show. Uh, summarizing basically their career. Singles, some album tracks, some B-sides, uh, a rarity here or there. Um, and in all of its brilliant pop hookery and also simultaneous obscurity, it posed a challenge. These songs had, had riffs. They had hooks. The sonic evolution of the band was easy to hear. They started off as early scrappy punks, and then they ended doing what weird soul moves and stuff like that. And yet, all throughout it, for a 16-year-old kid, I couldn't understand one damn thing about what these people were talking about. <laughs> Everything Paul Weller was on about was completely obscure, in a way that Squeeze even wasn't obscure to a kid who liked British music, but it was an American. There is no band, truly top-tier band in England that failed to travel to the United States that's more like more of a greater loss than the jam, and yet I completely understand why it was never going to happen because they're also the most quintessentially British band of that era to ever exist. Even while Paul Weller was the peak songwriter of his era, Elvis Costello, who himself was pretty darn British, somehow found a way to write Every Day I Write the Book, okay? Or he put Oliver's Army into a context mm -hmm. that might make it travel. The jam remained sort of you know on that island i think they had some success on the continent as well but really a truly british phenomenon and so i almost think of them uh, as a treasured cult item the americans look at the true. jam as a cult item so like everybody in britain knows who they are paul well is no so, yeah. secret to you but to us he's a mystery this music is a mystery and this show is an act frankly of proselytization i want it's people to love this band It is, and we're going to have to explain other things apart from what mod is. We're going to have to yeah. talk about pub rock, northern soul, the well, second you, generation you, 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 mod you've revival. You've got two I mean, guys here who are big fans of Brinsley Schwartz and Nick oh, Lowe as well. well you're, you're halfway there in that case. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, Scott, before we get into that, before we get into laying the groundwork here, what, what are your brief impressions? This is the first time, really, I think you've experienced the jam, isn't it? It's true. That's true. And I would say my first uh introduction to the jam was for some years early on in my music loving past uh, essentially confusing paul weller with paul westerberg all the time when i was looking at music and forgetting which was assigned to which band um took care of that after a while because i became a giant westerberg fan and replacements fan but still never went down that path to find 
the jam. And Jeff, I, I gotta say, hey, listen, I, I never knew what ELO did until we did our ELO episode. <laughs> Remember that? Underrated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Also very underrated. But I'm saying this happens. Sometimes it you happens. jump the rails and you miss a track. There, you know? there are blind spots everywhere. But I, I, I tell you, Jeff, I think you might have actually done it, and I yes! think I think you may have presented me with my old 97s. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that, that is could. a band that you had no idea about before we went in to record that with Jesse uh, Apoyan and now a, a favorite of yours, mm-hmm. and, but you had never heard of them previously. And I, I'm, I'm certain I had heard a couple of jam songs accidentally over the years, but I don't know if I had heard one intentionally necessarily. And after going through this process, I have, I have more notes than I could possibly imagine for a band with essentially You kind of wonder albums. why you never had, don't you? Well, you kind of wonder why you hadn't heard some absolutely. of these songs. Absolutely. I, 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 will, I will hold off telling you which song it is, although you know if you follow me on Twitter, but there's a song, and you could apply this to the entire catalog, essentially, saying, and I, I tweeted, I said, how is it possible? You, you run across a song, you run across a band, and you ask yourself, how is it possible it has existed my entire life and I've never heard this masterpiece until now but that happens and it happens with me and and the jam and it's a tight discography it's it's essentially one that you're not going to find much to quibble about perhaps until the very end and we might quibble about that among ourselves on the show today right and it's also interesting because uh the jam itself the jam the band doesn't really have a, a legacy. I, I had asked Jeff about this before recording. I said, okay, any any live reunions? They get back together. They play a one-off. What do they do? Jeff says, nope. They all hate each other and haven't talked to each other well, for 20 not, plus years. No, they don't hate each other anymore, but for a very long time they did. <laughs> so you yes. don't have that sort of tail on the band either in, into the future, finding new audiences and playing festivals and doing things like that. So you've got like to go to the way. original sources, whether it be you know the greatest hits disc, the compilations that Jeff will, will talk about, or as I did, uh, you know, first time going back to the albums themselves and finding the music. This, yeah, okay. This I is think also the jam's me. legacy is 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 universal in that everybody has been influenced by them, and and uh, they've totally shaped uh, yeah. British music uh, in their image, in Weller's image in particular, and the way that he has changed styles and moved on. It really anticipated twenty, you know, thirty you know, years worth. It, it is, you know, our our friend Charlie Cook likes to joke that if you could take the Gallagher brothers, throw them on a desert island, and the only song that they'd ever heard was Rain by the Beatles, you'd still get Oasis. But it's not true because you need Paul Weller there. Because Noel Gallagher is literally Paul Weller updated for the 90s. It's the basic (laughs) idea. I mean, even the look is so similar. 
other know? thing I want to say very briefly is we're going to talk a lot about the influences of the jam and how they show up in their songs. It is neat and fitting that so many songs from the past, uh, what pick a number, 20 years, 30 years, particularly, you hear very specific echoes of things the jam did in their career. So what they borrowed, loved from those bands that came years before them, others have followed and taken those things they borrowed and loved from the jam as well. One of the things about the jam that makes them great is they were never afraid to pay direct tribute to their influences. They were, Weller was just not self-conscious about it in the way that like, artists often I like often the way are. you put that. Yeah, that's a nice right. way of putting it. Some of like, normally they're say, embarrassed yeah. to be like, yeah, oh yeah, I'm copping my licks from The Who or from Motown. Weller was like, hell yes I am. Why? Because it's great and you should like it too. I mean, and, and, you know, talking about background like that actually is, is a good way to kind of segue. Let's just set the okay. scene up. Who are this band? It's going to be hilarious since I'm, I'm the American. I'm going to go first and just throw out what I think is the basic set scene. I'm going to let Dom afterwards explain why I'm an idiot. Okay? I'll, I'll, do, I'll do some footnotes on that. Go, go okay. for it, Jack. All you need to do is the basic, basic short version is that, you know, imagine a bunch of kids growing up in, in far suburban London, southwest suburbs. It's, it's beyond where Lennon was living in Weybridge. It's a place called Woking. It, ironically called Woking, although I believe it's a conservative constituency currently. I mean, I wait till the next election. But um, yeah, everything's going to go labor. But this is a place where, you know, a kid, his dad, he works, you know, I believe like at a factory or a construction site, something like that. Working class kid gets into rock music and it's 1975, 1976. The ferment in Great Britain is in the air. Now, it is so easy for us to forget living in 2023 and our technological comfort. What actual kind of doldrums in misery mid-70s Britain were mired in? I guess, you know, remember how we felt about the mid-70s in America with Carter and stagflation and all that, and all those sort of faded, grim, weird like color tones? Well, there was that in Britain, but there was the fact that they were hurt far more by World War II than we ever were and never quite got over it. I think wartime rationing was still going on in Britain until the late 50s or something like that. Um, and the misery of mid-70s Britain and the boredom and the stagnation of it was sort of the cauldron out of which punk music boiled out. You know, you hear Weller talk about it. He's like, I was sick of seeing bands like Fleetwood Mac. Now, I happen to love Fleetwood Mac. Scott loves them, too. Mm -hmm. But you, I, I also think of, like, you know, mid-'70s-era Rolling Stones, with the pampered, you know, Featherhead. And so they saw a guy like Johnny Lydon get up there, you know, as, as Johnny Rotten at the Sex Pistols and say, like, oh, I am an anarchist, and, you know, and sing God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the U.K. and thought, okay, this is for me. This is real. And that is where punk comes from. And, and as, as Don pointed out right at the beginning of the show, punk was more of a moment than it was a genre. It was an attack and a style that seemed right for a time when everyone was frustrated at the fact that they were going nowhere in a society. Even though the people who brought their music to this punk scene ended up going in so many different directions. 
you, you could go the way that John Lydon did with Public Image Limited. You could go to the way that Clash did, Full Commitment. You could go Art Rock like Wire. Or you can go the way the Jam did. And what the Jam brought with the three-person attack they had, it was like a five-person band originally, four people. They were gigging around with other people, but apparently the only the only combo that ever seemed to really work was just the three of them. It was Paul Weller on guitar, it was Rick Buckler on drums, and it was Bruce Foxton on bass. And a simple power trio format seemed to be this band's aesthetic. Angry, fast, but... And this is what distinguished them, a curiously songwriterly bent. These were not just three-chord, grunt-amount, scream-amount simple songs. Paul Weller was looking, most notably at this point, to Pete Townsend. I guess that's what sets up, you know, you know, the first album, the first single and, you know, sort of uh, a movement that they were trying to exist in at the time, which is called the neo mod movement, which I think maybe Dom is probably better equipped to explain than I am, because God help me. I I didn't even live for the first one, much less the second. (laughs) Well, well, firstly, can I congratulate you on on, uh, your sociologically precise description? of the band as originating uh, as working class people in an aspirational uh, conservative voting, small C conservative mentality, uh, suburban town at an absolute low point of, of uh, British life, which I can dimly remember the seventies. as I was If you child. understand was that, terrible. if you understand that you basically understand everything about what Paul Weller would write about and what he'd focus on lyrically for the next seven years of their career. I think this is true. And and his discovery of the who and mod culture is the key, really, that, as he said, gave him an angle on things. And yeah. um, I should really explain what that is, because there are mods in the US, um, but they're not many. Um, mod is, the original mods uh, were modernists, as in modern jazz in the 1950s. Um, and the generation after that are the mods of Pete Townsend and the who. And I recommend younger listeners watch the movie Quadrophenia. Because although it was made with the the extras of Quadrophenia were the second wave uh, mod revivalists of the late 70s, um, the events and and the lifestyle is pretty accurately depicted is first wave mod stuff. You may not know this, Dom, but uh, fans of the show will. Quadrophenia is, (laughs) I consider it to be the greatest album ever released. Uh, Well, it's certainly one of the best rock movies as well, because it really does show it. Now, the mod culture of the 1960s, we're looking at, and and it goes, but you can trace it back to the Edwardians, believe it or not, the very first uh, working class dandies, aspirational young men who had money to spend on what we would now call leisure and had the weekend due to uh, unionized uh, labor. Uh, That goes back to the Edwardians, and there were complaints then about uh, people loitering on street corners, getting up to no good, and being slightly overdressed in a manner which which, uh, suggested no respect for their betters. 
And indeed, if you look at the jam, that's precisely the look. Um, oh, yeah. The, the mod look, of course, is, is an interesting. This is basically Italian tailoring or slightly tightened up uh, classic English tailoring. The sound is very much rooted, though, in black American R&B. Mm -hmm. And then through the 1950s and 60s, as Europe is being rebuilt and a consumer culture develops, Italian style in particular, French as well, but particularly Italian style, which is espresso drinking and Vespers. Uh, becomes part of it as well. So really, if you're in Britain, you're between the US and Europe. You have to uh, remake your own culture after 1945. And so you get this combination of black American music and new modernist European style. And that's very distinctive, isn't it? And indeed, when The Who did really break in the US, it wasn't as the mod band who mm -hmm. were playing R&B covers and short numbers. It was as the jamming band that did I Can See for Miles or Tommy, Tommy in particular. Right. So a whole they had to change band. their style to make it because, right. because Americans probably were like, well, why do we need to hear a British version of something we already know? <laughs> no, they, they became a symphonic rock band, right? Um, which to me seems a pretty much the opposite really of, of, of what a mod would do which is to keep it clean and tight and fast and clear that the clean lines musically stylistically uh, is a big part of a sort of mod self-respect and the amazing thing is you can pretty much explain all the youth culture that has come out of britain as in this mod lineage because punk is basically mod revved up and if you look at what the Sex Pistols say were playing when they were rehearsing in 1975-76, it was songs like Sha La 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 Lee by the Small Faces, who along with the Who were the great mod band. Um, if you look, listen to the uh, the early Clash tunes, for instance, of song like 1977 or Clash City Rockers, these are in the shadow of the Who's I Can't Explain. Um, Everybody in punk grew up listening, in other words, to mod music, to English rock of the 60s. If, and, of course, the Beatles themselves, you know, the question, were the Beatles a mod band? Well, the answer was given by Ringo when he was asked if they were mods or rockers, which was the other great option. And he said, neither we're mockers. Um, <laughs> which Beatles, was a joke, but it's true. Oh, it's profoundly true in the way of all Ringo jokes, in the sense that they were basically a greaser band who, who came up playing rock and roll and country. But if you look at how they dressed from 1964 onwards, they're, they're dressed in mod clothes and they're playing modish music as well. Um, so they have that as well. In, and from punk, it goes to the 1980s music, really, which Paul Weller um, broke new ground in, which is um, new dance music, particularly uh, an interest in jazz and funk and then the house music that came out of Chicago and Detroit and the rave culture of the late 80s, early 90s. The, the mod revival, really, of the, of the Britpop movement in the 1990s, which elected Paul Weller as its mod father, as they call him. Um, you can really expect, because that's that's the culture. That is the musical culture of uh, England. Why did you have to knock them down? And 
mod in, in various different shapes. And, I, and that still goes on. I think it's funny, you know, I think, I think England, I would argue it, it oscillates. It has a pendulum swing between like, you know, very kind of pompous ornate orchestralisms, uh, you know, think of Sgt. Peppers and the Beatles versus we're going to get back to basics, the blues boom versus it, that's one version of it. That's the rocker version of basics. The mod version is, you know, the straight lines version of getting back to basics. But you're right. I'm a confessed anglophile when it comes to music. I've spent far too much time studying currents, cross currents in British musical history. There is the there is this constant push pull, and that's yes. the, and punk and the jam represent. And by the way, they showed they were part of the pendulum too because they started as a purely straight line band. And of course, as we'll see over time, they themselves inevitably fell. You know, you know, fell victim or uh, it took advantage of artistic freedom to to grow outwards. Very you start, much, yeah. yeah, you start you start with this first album. So like mm. the punk scene, the punk scene functionally explodes. I is it, I can't is it November seventy six when uh, Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen come out. It's it's late seventy six when punk, I guess, formally is inaugurated. And one of the things that we always forget is how how brief the moment really was. Mm-hmm. It's kind of over in a lot of ways by yes, 78. Yes, it is, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing really is um, A New Rose by The Damned, which comes yeah. out in late 76. And, of course, by January 78, uh, Sid Vicious is dead and the Sex Pistols are broken up. And at that point, everybody breaks the cover and starts making more interesting music in a way. It's like right. in, the, in the aftermath of that, that the jam breaks through and become the jam that we know. And The Clash also do much the same, in fact, with London Calling. I always feel like the Pistols are like start the pistol on punk and actually <laughs> wires wires pink flag is kind of the last real punk album from the first era because it's already art rock it's play like punk but already you can you can tell that the nerds have infiltrated uh and in between you get very early on the jam and that's what's worth pointing out is that they were early on this scene. Uh, they, were, they had a contract, I think, by January of 77. Uh, one of the things Paul Weller benefited from, you know, usually a lot of these rock stars have like horrible relationships with their families. You know, like, you know, bad fathers who like uh, the Grateful Dead, like literally the drummer's dad stole all their money and ran away to Mexico. I mean, this Paul Weller had a dad who actually really gave a crap about him. And he managed them. He, he, he drove them around. and He drove them around. The He's, yeah. you know, it's John Weller was his name. And it, it's one of those things that should be pointed out. Is like, it's good to have a really supportive family structure when you're doing this thing. Because John Weller was a construction worker. But he's like, my kid's got talent. I'm going to do everything I can to make this yes. happen for him. All right. And so he got, you know, the band came together. He managed him, drove him around, did all that. Got them a contract. And... By, I think, March of 1977, they come out with their first song, their first single. It's called In the City. And I guess we'll talk about it in the context of the album that immediately followed it, which is In the City. And ironically, these guys are not from the city. So this is like bridge and tunnel tourism when you think about it. It's people from the suburbs talking about how exciting it is to go to London and actually see the hustle bustle and see what it is, the, what it's like to be alive, to get out of that, those, you know, stultifying doldrums that you thought were just your life. And wow, there's another world here. Sounds from the street. This is the, they were a little bit too obvious about it in their branding a little later, but this is the youth explosion. This is the, the exciting phase of the jam's early career young mods on the make what do you guys think of the debut
I, um, I, like most punk records, it doesn't age too well, but there are several tracks which I think are brilliant, and In the City is one of them. And, and the way it just comes out the gate, and the, the intro riff, um, you'll notice, is used later in 1977 uh, by Steve Jones as the yeah. intro for the Sex Pistols' Holiday in the Sun. He mm-hmm. takes it up a key, but basically it's the same. Na, 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 na. Um, I was contrasting this when I listened to it back. It came to me that um, Nick Lowe uh, wrote In the Heart of the City, which mm-hmm. is about a, sim- a similar thing. But Nick Lowe has a rocker take on it, which is, you know, he's looking for love in the heart of the city with the alligators roaming. Well, they don't roam in London. There are no alligators there. Uh, but that's a rocker thing. That's a very Americanized rocker way of putting it. Um, very romantic and well, because oh, yeah, Nick Lowe comes from pub rock, which is exactly yes. so the yeah. embodied. It's the it's the rocker legacy. It's that trail. We were talking about the mod legacy. That the rocker legacy, you know, goes to pub rock. I'd yeah, say. and you can see really how different the mentality is um, compared to in the city, which is a classic mod song, and the lyric. And I'm going to, to uh, recite some of the lyrics because um, they always remind me of the poetry of Philip Larkin. That yeah. kind of mildly depressive, socially observant English verse. I won't put on a Philip Larkin voice, but the, the opening line, so, and Weller from the start has this wonderful lyrical way. His, his lyrics are so tight, and his opening lines are just always killers. And it begins, in the city, there's a thousand things I want to say to you, but whenever I approach you, you make me look a fool. And that is just totally mod, because that's this inarticulate, possibly... Mm. Pilled up, blocked. frustrated, yeah, blocked, blocked, blocked right. teenage you. Totally the opposite of this kind of rock, swaggering rocker in the Nick Lowe tune. And they come out at the same time. And Nick Lowe, of course, is producing a lot of punk records for Stiff Late, which is the first independent label at this time as well. But the jam are so obviously more assured than anybody else. And the thing is, they were doing this before. We mentioned pub rock, this scene of small backroom gigs which have been going for a couple of years and the all the groups that were associated with that appeared spontaneously like elvis costello and the attractions ian dury and the blockheads the jam these just happened um the contrast that with the sex pistols the damned and the clash who are the big three of the london punk bands they are um, planned into being and they emerge from the same small rehearsal room in west london there's such a contrast. The jam are fully baked by the time they appear overnight. And and that's why the Clash took them on tour straight away, because they were just so obviously at the top of their game from the very first song. One last point I want to make before I, I hand it over to Scott for a second, but there's something, yeah, there's a primitive, it's a very primitive sound, especially to what the jam would later develop. So it's, yeah, three chords in an attitude uh, and three men and a lot of rage. But there's the lyrics here are brilliant. There's a conceit on the song Art School that still invigorates me. And it totally, totally touches on the, what you're talking about. They came to the city and they said, you know what? Uh, 
we don't have to take these old rules. This is the new art school. Because back in the old mod days, you know, how did the Who come together? It was Townsend and Entwistle meeting each other at art school, right? That was the joke. All the uh, the, the the rock bands of the British 60s met at art school in the mid-60s because they couldn't get into real uni. Um, and so this is the new art school where he says, I mean, he's, he's straight up. He's always on the nose. That's the best thing about Paul yeah. Weller. He does not mm-hmm. beat around the bush. He says, who makes the rules and make people select? Who is to judge that your ways are correct? The media's watchdog is absolute shit. The TV <laughs> telling you what to think. This man does yeah. not mince words. And that's the thing. He will never mince words again. And that's even when he gets more poetic. He's so to the point about it. And there's something so invigorating about, yeah, you know, no idols before me, even though he has idols. That's the thing. Art school is not like a grunt of a song. It's a really well written piece. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason that I think it opens. It opens the album because it sends a message. It says, this is the new art school. Uh, You know, I've changed my address. It's no longer Woken. I'm now in London. down which you know of course it's an old like 50s song but it's clearly meant to be a Beatles signal a tip of the cap and then you have like the Batman theme which is a the who covered it on which that is a classic yeah classic more delusion and you're no. right about the Larry Williams thing for slow down because the Beatles did Dizzy Miss Lizzie right and, and, and other tracks as well by Larry Williams right. this is one of the in- unique things actually about the jam amongst all the other groups of this generation I don't think the others did 50s rock and roll covers. And, and mm-hmm. You know, even the 60s covers are very quickly dropped. And if they were 60s covers, they were usually by the Stooges or something like that because they were easy to play. Because they were double tributes for the jam. They weren't paying tribute to just the Beatles and the Who. They were also paying tribute to the R&B guys who Weller, yeah. obviously, as we know, would later go on to develop further in his musical growth yeah this is a key 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 difference with uh say i don't know buzzcocks who are very much oriented towards uh can and kraut rock and europe well i mean and then they yeah and then they kicked howard devoto out and they left him to go do magazine (laughs) i think pete shelley was a little more more, a little more pop afterwards but you're right they were much more I, i was talking with scott about this they were much more angular and uh, I think more uh, striated in terms of their tension, whereas there was a thickness to the jam sound that was always deeply indebted to classic rock from the British mid 60s. And of course, that in turn was indebted to, you know, 60s and 50s R&B. Now, I mm. could go on forever, but Scott, come on, I, I, I blocked you out forever. All right. So I think I'll start here, which is because I did not know the jam my mind placed them very much among the punk bands of that time. And as you guys have both talked about, it's not unfair to say that they were in that scene, but from the very start, from this first album, from the first songs, 
just echoing the point that Jeff was just making there, there's so much more, there's so much more depth to the songs than the surface level of punk in some ways. You do have that aggression and, you know, speed that, that punk would bring to the party, but listening to these songs, it's incredibly clear how much they adore those songs that you guys have referenced. The R&B, especially the 50s and 60s. There's a song in here, song on In the City, uh, uh, Taking My Love, which is just 50s and 60s rock cliches, lyrically. Shaking my heart, shaking yeah. my soul, I just want to go crazy, want to rock and roll, babe. The first line very, of the song. Very tellingly, it was like one of the quickest songs they dropped from their live act. Yeah. I think that even, even they were a little bit... <laughs> <laughs> But you can see where the influence comes from on a song like that. And I was talking with um, Harvey Lisberg, and our Patreon supporters have heard this interview, who was the manager of Herman's Hermits and 10CC for a mm. long time. And he said something at the start of our interview that I just hadn't considered in this way. Maybe it'll strike Dominic uh, not as much as it struck me, being with his background. But he said, the, you know, the Beatles breaking was such a big deal because... For, for for Brits, it meant that not everything great had to come from America. Like it was something of their own. And in addition to the music and the way they looked and the way they played, it was something that was that was their own. It was it was Britain. It was British. And the Jam, I think, is one of those bands, maybe one of the first bands, that looks backward and says this this British tradition that we've been building, Mod and the Beatles and others, it's something worth upholding it's something worth referencing it's something worth building upon yeah and, and jeff has made this point and we'll talk through you know th their influences are so clear you know from the kinks and the who and and the beatles where the jam small draw. face is also really underrated as dom mentioned really yeah. underrated but it's very clear where they draw their influences from and and, and they're building on this british rock tradition yes I think this also uh, is where we get this ambivalence in Weller and in his lyrics and even in his music. This is somebody who wants to move forward, who wants to change things, who wants to break up the class system and get out of the shadow of the past, but is simultaneously 
has very romantic feelings about the old ways of doing things, about the past. You know, and in 1977, various people accused him of being a sort of British Empire nostalgist. And there was only about 50 of them in the country at the time. <laughs> and all, all of them were, were members of the National Front. And they were the jammer, often accused of having kind of neo-fascist leanings because, you know, they had the you know, flag on the amplifiers. In the they way were very, they, they, wore, they wore the Who-style British jackets. They, and they also, like, Weller had the sort of skin head haircut very short cut and also i think he made some completely snarky you know the way they misinterpreted david bowie like oh we gave a nazi salute when he was actually just waving to fans uh, the, the, like weller said like you should vote conservative you're, you're a was, generous man jeff you're being oh, very generous uh, well, oh, 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 okay. we did our three-part bowie episode where we all acknowledged the man had at that point taken so much cocaine that he was literally a narco-terrorist regime unto himself <laughs> okay but he was misinterpreted. Was, yeah. <laughs> he was, was misinterpreted in that one case. And similarly, Paul Weller had one one of these take the piss interviewers mm. interviews where he's like, I'm gonna vote conservative. You should vote conservative. And he was just I think probably like, you know, having a slag on, on the uh the, the person who he had no respect for interviewing him. And of course then it's like, yes, National Front, he's just like screwdriver or something like that, like like obscure like white nationalist British mm -hmm. bands. No, the jam. We listen, I this is one of the reasons we, we deal with politics when you have to deal with politics on this show. And, of course, with the jam, there's a lot of very political songs. Mm -hmm. There um, is, yeah. And there was, but so there's there no question that Weller, the, Weller has always oh. been a man of the left, but of sort of oh, the, the, the populist left and not the sort of the intellectualized left, but sort of like the, the – I, 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 I very much in the continuum of Ray Davis. Um, more than Ray Davis, Weller is a man of the English working class, and the English working yeah. class has always actually voted Conservative uh, rather than uh, Labour yeah. tends to. Uh, so small C attitudes, big C attitudes, you know, are two different things. Totally. Um, but, but a sense of uh, class loyalty uh, is a big running theme in, in Weller's songs, including the way it can hold you back as much as, as keep you afloat. It's gonna, uh, it, and the it, truth is also that one of the things which Mod developed into in the late 60s, you know, the more upmarket mods became hippies. In fact, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing, but true. I mean, Mark Boland, who was, you know, king of the hippies by 1970 was was sort riding of a of, white swan somewhere before there in the he early mounted 70s, the white yeah. swan yeah before right. he before he even tethered it up he was mark feld uh, king of the teenage mods and there are photos taken by don mccullen who was a leading photographer at the time took the beatles photos for the white album i think uh, mccullen's as a snap of uh, the proto mark bolan as a mod now the upmarket uh, mods went that way the downmarket ones um went to skinhead which in itself then developed into um, a sort of fascist movement with music attached um so there, there you know there was some cause uh, for concern about what exactly a mod revival uh, would mean especially as in the late 70s the national front were very active and and, and recruiting among the you know the young 
Listen, I'm going to say that. There, there's, that. there are still a few decent Sham 69 songs, but I don't really need... <laughs> it's not, probably not worth litigating these days. But it's fascinating, though. Yeah. To, 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 no, no, I mean, this. all of these things inform Weller's lyrics from here on out. And I think you know, it, it, we talk about development, but the one place, and we, we probably can just deal with this fairly briefly, where there doesn't seem to be a lot of development is this. Everyone agrees. The narrative agrees on it. All the mm-hmm. band members agree on it. It's the universally agreed upon treading water record. It's their second album. This is the modern world. Yes. And they start, and I think the audience capture starts with In the City. In the City, there's a lot of things I want to say to you. I'm giving you news of the world. Well, that'll come up later. And so what is their album, the single that they release in between those albums? It's all around the world. And this is the early jam. It, it's a great song. It's got a lot of powerfully explosive hooks. But, oh, it's ever so try hard. <laughs> you know, when Paul Weller is just literally saying youth explosion in the middle of the, it's like, uh, you know, yeah, you know, do you really need to tie a big red ribbon on top of it? Yeah, I get what you're trying to sell to the masses here. But yeah. can see the scene starting to show and maybe even a little bit of self-doubt it's a sophomore slump thing where like i had a really great starting idea and now i have to build on it and i'm not ready to face the face the music yet to be perfectly honest so what do you guys think of both all around the world and this second album this is a mob world this is a mob world what kind of got to say it is a bad case of second album syndrome in the this is the modern world they didn't have the songs and they were pressured to do a second album in the same year i think it's about six months between the two and and the only track that i think is worth listening to is the title song Uh, this is the modern world uh and again a brilliant weller opening line what kind of fool do you think i am you think i know nothing of the modern world which is which is a very mod thing to say uh, but is also presuming that someone thinks that he's not from the modern world, hmm. that he's dressed as if he's as he was wearing the clothes of uh, 15 years earlier. There's something so arresting about the bluntness with which he puts those questions to you. What kind of fool do you think I am? It's like, 
that's normal street talk. You don't hear it in songs. It works here because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And also like um, do what you want because this is the new art school. It's all single syllable words. What kind of fool do you think I am? Um, as you know, that's the most powerful uh, rhetorical device uh, there is in, in terms of, of pure rhythm. That's to be or not to be. Uh, and that's Anglo-Saxon English. It's not the, the sophisticated uh, French, Frenchified vocabulary that came in, you know, with the uh, Norman invasion and so on. That is the, the bluntest form of English. It's brilliantly done. And, and of course, it works perfectly with the music, which is another question here, which is that Weller has this tremendous aggression, but also this great lyrical quality musically mm -hmm. and, and verbally. And the rhythm section, you know, Rick Buckler's drumming is is just pure muscular, aggressive drumming. And um, Bruce Foxton's bass playing is lyrical, melodious, expansive. And so the two of them really are the perfect minimal setting for these two aspects. This is a matter I mean, I was going to get to this actually when we got to all mod cons, where it really comes into full focus. Yeah, let's get to that. <laughs> but none of this, none of this, none of this music works without those two guys. No. I, uh, you know, but, I, this is the modern world is the album that everybody's like hates i remember buying that direction reaction creation box that was my second step into the jam i just said screw it i'll get the complete works i, I literally said to myself well this worked for me with joy division i'm sure it will work here as well <laughs> it did obviously and everybody even in the liner notes to that set said well this album's crap i don't think it's that bad no i agree i don't i, I, don't, I don't think it's that bad I, I i might prefer it to to their to their final there album. You, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit I, you know something early here is you know yeah. their who influences are showing very strongly on the first two albums and i i think yeah. almost more so here than even on the first album the first album had a great non-who song called away from the numbers we didn't talk about mm. but it's the kids are all right part two in both yeah. lyric and, and 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 melody that's a really good song i think it's even almost stronger here on the second album and the one thing i'd say about this is the modern world is what makes the jam so special really is that attention to that whether it pays to melody the hookiness of these songs and it fails them just a bit on this album to the point where if you're just listening, some of these songs start to blend together. And you don't say that a lot about the jam moving forward. Each song has its own personality, has its own hook, has its own way of you remembering exactly what it is. Not quite as clear on Modern World. But I do think, uh, well, again, the who, the standards uh, takes I Can't Explain and begins with that riff. Uh, the Combine is very who-esque in a lot of ways. I, I think Here Comes the Weekend. It's a song I would salvage from this particular album. Uh, another kind of you know, worked-in-class anthem. It's a little bit of a mystery why it hasn't become some sort of, you know, again, Friday, 5 o'clock, weekend DJ kind <laughs> yeah, of song. I, know, right? I knew you were going to take it in the well, DJ yeah, direction. That's, that's like, what I do. Hey, you know, guys, everybody's on the road going home on Friday. Here comes the weekend. And after yeah. this, Loverboy, right? Working for the weekend. But yeah, long yeah. live the weekend. The weekend is here. It's that sort of anthemic uh, working-class sort, sort, of, sort of anthem. Every tell you that you got to Yeah. 
And the other point I wanted to make briefly, because I know I, I, I think Jeff said he wanted to maybe spin off this, is yeah. uh, you know they they pick great songs to cover uh, throughout their career, and they do a cover of "In the Midnight Hour" at the end of "This Is the Modern World," and I'm listening to it, and I can't stop thinking this, and it seems silly in my mind, and I, I send it off to Jeff, and he says, "No, that, that that's that's pretty accurate." When I listen to "In the, the Midnight Hour," what I hear is almost Devo-esque in its feel. That very mechanical bass line, that lurching forward uh, momentum of the song. And Jeff, you were saying that's, uh, I'm not crazy. You're not crazy at all. What you're hearing there is this sort of amped up, again, very mod, the pills and uppers, amped up precision attack of the jam. And it's and, and they seem almost more free to do it on covers because they already know the contours of the song. So they can just literally shave it away to razor lines. They do it on In the Midnight Hour. They do it on Heat Wave. They did it on Slow Down. Jam, like, you know, their covers are always usually like old 50s, 60s covers but they're never weak. They're mm. really good when they try to another guy's song. So yeah, in the midnight hour has that metronomic Devo like feel, but that's because Bruce Foxton's bass is like an ice pick to the skull. Sometimes <laughs> it's meant to be that precise. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you know, when, when Buckler hits every Tom, you know, he's a boom, 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 boom. That's the clean straight lines. Again, this is the same thing that Dom talked about there. I, I love that 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 aesthetic of the jam. And they never lost it. They never lost it, even all the way into 1982, in my opinion. So this album, yeah, it, it seems weaker. I honestly, I've listened to the jam for a good 20 years now. I don't know the difference between London Girl and London Traffic. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I know one of them that Weller tried to remake. And, and then like Standards, Life from a Window, I like Don't Tell Them You're Sane, which, by the way, Bruce Foxton's writing more songs on this album, the bassist, and there's a reason for that, which is going to become apparent here, is that Weller, as we can see on album two, is kind of running out of ideas. He hit the panic button, basically. You know, the meme of the guy, who, superhero dude who's sweating, these big red buttons, and the other one button says, put out new <laughs> album. Other album button says, artistic growth. Well, he, put a, he chose put out new albums. And what happened is he had nothing to come up with. So the next single literally was something that Bruce came up with. And I actually really like the song News of the yeah, World. It's a good I think, song. I, th I think it gets unfairly treated because it comes at the, you know, Paul Weller started in the city, but then he went all around the world to tell you about the modern world. And uh, now he's also telling you news of the world. And he farmed that out to the bass guy. And so, the thing is, everybody knew that the jam had to change gears at this point, maybe except them. But I do love News of the World. Yeah, and I, I mean, think it's a really good single. I think, I, I, it, it's, it and by good. the way, it, yeah. it's, it's not Bruce Foxton's best song for the jam, which is a tribute to him.
I should mention the News of the World is a newspaper. And oh, a a thankfully talk. defunct newspaper, yeah. Well, some of us used to, yeah, it was my first read on a Sunday morning. <laughs> anyway, Grew um, up with it, fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the News of the World was a scurrilous tabloid newspaper, uh, mm -hmm. which would specialize in, in doing things like, I think one of the reasons it came unstuck because it had a, a reporter they called the fake sheikh who would dress up as, as an Arab businessman and try and entice uh, British businessmen um, into corrupt dealings. And, uh, so there's a lot of talk in um, the Weller songs about the media and stuff, which is very mod as well. This, this awareness of, of, of consumer culture and being part of it. They were situationists, in fact. You know, the video for art school uh, is the same as an early Clash video, which has people painting slogans on the wall behind them as they're playing. And this thing of headlines and pop art and tabloids and so on. It's very self-referential, isn't it? And mod culture is also a very little bubble. And I think Weller was, had squeezed all he could from that, if you can squeeze a bubble. <laughs> and and um, and he had to look beyond it. And this was the make-or-break moment for them, really, 1978. And and this was the point also which, of the um, big punk bands, you know, the, the Sex Pistols had collapsed. The Damned broke up that year. Uh, the Clash were, were sort of putting out brilliant singles, but effectively rudderless, reaching the end of the big rock sound. And this, indeed, is, this, is, this is going to become the give them enough rope phase. Yeah, exactly. Before, before, before they figured yeah. it out with London yeah, Calling. Yeah. Right. They had a similar problem, and they went, they jumped for the, the big American sound and missed on yeah. give them enough rope. Um, it's overdone and overproduced. And again, the songs are not as strong. So at this point in 1978, everyone in this you know, generational movement is in a bit of a crisis. And, right. and the, the, none of them, actually, to their credit, go for the Ramones answer, which is to keep making the same record. Um, they, they all go in very different directions. Wire, wire put yeah. out chairs missing yeah. for crying out loud. And Leiden goes towards experimental music. The Damned reform is a very different kind of group. Uh, and the Jam have the, the breakthrough that was all mod cons. But Jeff, you can probably tell us the, the background detail to this. I mean, they got an interview. You remember a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, when Alec Baldwin comes to the office and basically says, first prize is, you know, a, a new car. Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. Uh, <laughs> He was on a mission of mercy is what he described himself as being. Well, Chris Perry basically went on a mission of mercy to the jam. He was the head of Polydor at the time, I think. And he said, listen, the new demos you've submitted me for album number three, as it was called at the time, suck. This, this is crap. You guys, it, 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 it's the same. You're treading water the same way you did on album number two. Take some time and go back to the drawing board. And, you know, it's funny. I would have been pretty stung by that criticism myself. Uh, they all seem to be pretty copacetic about it in retrospect. I was watching the other day. I sent it to Scott. It's not very know, punk of him, is it? Yeah, I know. Well, you know, they're all old men at this yeah. point, but they're like, thank God. I mean, it's like you, they ditched him as producer for the album, so maybe they weren't entirely chill with it <laughs> in the moment. Um, they got Vic Coppersmith having in there to do for the rest of their classic stuff. Uh, uh, but it basically saved their bacon because what happened is that Paul Weller I do, the leap here, I think of bands that made sort of almost mystically or, or, or just truly admirable, you know, uh, quantum steps forward in like how they wrote songs or how they approached. And you can talk about totally different groups. I think of Genesis going from their you know ridiculous first album to Trespass and like now we're Prague. I, I think of, you know, the way 
the pulp somehow turned from a failed 80s band into one of the greatest bands of the 90s. And then I look at the jam between This Is The Modern World and All Mod Cons, and I marvel at how quickly Paul Weller was able to grow as a songwriter. And the beauty of All Mod Cons is you see the growing pains in the midst of it. The music leaps forward, leaps and bounds forward. The lyrics... Half of those lyrics are still very clunky. He doesn't quite know how to grapple with emotional issues yet. And I could discuss it song for song and line for line in this respect. But All Mod Cons is the point. It's the changing point. It is one of the greatest albums of the Jam's career. It's one of my favorite albums of the entire late 70s. Yeah, I, I think one something else happens in 1978, which is that they tour the U.S. supporting Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, and th this is one of the most terrible mismatches. Um, <laughs> since Jimi Hendrix, I think, was supporting Herman's Hermes. For the monkeys, no, the monkeys. Yes. The, the monkeys, monkeys and Herman's yeah. Hermes. I mean, just disastrous. So, and it was a failure. And maybe they would have gone differently in the US if they had been, um, you know, had approached it more candidly, but they didn't. Um, and so, Weller's reaction to the rejection in the US and the rejection of the demos is to dig deeper into what right. he knows. He went back to working listened apparently to a lot of kinks records which is really so ironic dom because remember the kinks delved into their own british roots yeah they couldn't get to the u.s exactly by the american musicians union from performing in the united states right exactly yes. so he it's clever really having recapitulated the early who when he hits a, a, a end of the road really with that he then recapitulates the second stage of what the kinks did to get out of their own predicament as when they were a beat group that couldn't cross over into the US, they then diverted it deeper into Englishness. And that's exactly what he does here. When people say that Weller's an impersonator, they miss the point that he, he's really refashioning all of these things and has a very smart, critical understanding of how to, to use uh, the past and, and update it. Been to ancient worlds, scoured the whole universe, caught the first train home. To be at her side No matter where I roam I will return to my English rose For no bonds ever keep me from she And by the way, they're all mod cons after all. But I should explain. I was, I, I was <laughs> going to, but yeah, it's a pun okay. that every aspect of that title is lost upon it's, America. Right. You want to, you do it. <laughs> okay. Well, firstly, there's the the obvious one is is saying that as 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 the Clash were saying at the same time when they said phony Beatlemania has bitten the dust. Weller is saying the mod revival is a commercial con, just like punk was. But also. 
Um, the phrase all mod cons comes from uh, classified ads in the newspapers. If you wanted to rent an, a flat, an apartment in Britain, you paid by the letter for the adverb. And so there were these abbreviated phrases, all modern conveniences. Right. And so it's a That's very ironic take on, on modern life, as it, on the modern world. You've got all the modern conveniences, but you may still be miserable. And, and Weller's songwriting, as, as you were saying, is developing rapidly. And he reminds me of um, Bruce Springsteen, who once called his songs um, happy tunes with sad lyrics. Um, that's pretty much uh, the, the Weller recipe here as well. They're melodious, powerful songs, but they're often dealing with uh, unpleasant and sad subjects. The pedal track is, it, by the way, the pedal track is so brilliant. It's a minute and 20 seconds yes. long. And I, it is as blunt as it goes. Scott? I, I, I came to me, this sounds to me like Welcome to the Working Week from yes. Elvis Costello's first album. Like the way that you begin an album immediately hitting someone over the head with this very uh, catchy, kind of jangly, twitchy song. It's a minute, 19 seconds. That's the way you introduce an album. Straight up rejection of all the phony friends. I've seen you before. You know, every time was a, all the time we're getting rich. You hang around to help me out, but when we're skint, oh God forbid, you drop us like hot bricks. And the, the greatest like artistic freedom. Do what you want, but just make sure that the money ain't gone. Uh, and this yeah. is exactly the message of um, I think it's backstabbers, isn't it? By the in the Clash's second album has a similar thing. And yeah. a similar conclusion as well. You, you're, you're, you're seeing my, my grand theory of this record coming out. I think a lot of it is influenced by The Clash in 1978. Yeah. It, 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 I kept hearing the sound of those productions, particularly the way the guitar solos are placed. Um, I think he's listening very carefully to what the competition are doing. Because by 1978, it's only really Weller and Strummer and Jones who, who, are, who are in the lead. They pulled it- ahead of the whole pack. Yeah, it's interesting to remember that they were a little uncertain about like the, uh, how this would all play at first. I think the first single that came out from this album was the cover track. It was David Watts. Hmm. The cover, the cover of the King song, which everyone knows. Hey, it's funny you hear them saying, "Well, we rediscovered this track," and of course, in twenty twenty three, you rediscovered David Watts. You rediscovered a song I've known since I was like eight. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the point is, is that I am shocked at how much time I have for a cover, almost a very faithful cover of a song. I'm going to just say it now. I've never loved the original Kinks version as much as I like the Jams version of it. 
uh, and wow. I guess wow. I know, I know, I know, I know. But it's interesting. They change. They there's do change it because little, there's something fair Ray about Davis, the way that Ray, Ray Davis. It, well, Ray Davis it. sings it in quite a posh voice, and it's a song about being infatuated. But right, you're being basically the, the, the head boy beta, of the, beta, you know, the, beta, uh, the beta kid who loves the head boy at the school, right? Which is know? very kind of grammar school, public, you know, private school thing, and. Paul Weller, with his accent and, and the aggression he brings to it, is that of the outsider. No, 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 the funny than... thing is, though, but remember, he farmed the actual verse out to to, to Bruce. He gave that line to Bruce Fox, mm. who's a little weedier in his voice. And it's only <laughs> it's only when the like, and when I lie on my pillow at night, that's when Paul yeah. Weller chimes in, right? I, I think you're right. I think in many ways it is actually yeah, more enjoyable than the original because they bring out the, the, the tensions in it much more. Cause, cause, cause I had the to original confess, with it. I didn't even know it was a cover for many years. Not until I got into the kinks did I actually realize that this was a cover. And that shows how soaked in Ray Davies' songwriting Weller is at this point. He insisted, by the way, that it'd be a double A side. Like they hadn't done that thing in Britain for a long time. And the, the B side is is one of the, the penultimate track on the album. It's called A Bomb and Water Street. And of course, this is a again. You talk about things. I heard this out this song on Snap when I was a kid. I had no earthly clue what he's talking about. It's like it's like did somebody detonate a dirty bomb? No, right. I didn't know. It wasn't like that. Well, no, well Wardle no. Street is in Soho in the West End of London. Right. It's, it's a actually historic, right? Yeah, the Marquis Club is there and also it's historically where the British film industry uh, was based. And in funnily enough, in the 1990s, on the site of the Marquee Club, I, I ran a house band that was literally, um, the stage was on the site of where the stage of the Marquee Club, where the Who and all these other th people had played, which was a bit uncanny. I, I always felt a bit embarrassed about doing it. But um, there were lots of, uh, as we were saying, in 70s England, a lot of troubles um, between different you know, youth groups, as they were called. And, and I think in Wardour Street, there had been a sort of weekend dust up between punks and skins or mods and rockers or football hooligans which was a big part of it as well and weller is describing the aftermath of this of, of the sense that this very exciting uh youth generational movement could actually just get out of control and be a nasty and violent one and i think without without spoiling it the final track on the album um down in the tube station at midnight is also about that the very same thing Oh boy. 
Oh, uh, where do I start? I think this is the Jam's best album. Uh, it's my favorite album. And it's got a song. This is, okay, so this is the song that I was referring to at the beginning of the episode when I said, how could this song exist for so long and I not know about it? How is it possible? And that's in the crowd. Um, and it's right in the center of the album. And that's it's the one-two punch that, that the flip the flip the switch flipped when I heard heard in the crowd and followed by Billy Hunt. That's where I began to understand the band, and that's when I really embraced them wholeheartedly. But in the crowd, in the crowd is a song that was designed in a lab for me to love it every <laughs> single part. It is the very best of the Kinks and like the very best of like big star in a way yeah yeah um, well, it actually it actually is the kinks and yeah. that's the thing the uh, the break when he goes i think it's basically what is almost the chorus or a bridge that goes into it is note for note chord for chord what johnny thunder by the kinks does at exactly that point yes, from from, from village, the village green preservation okay, album, which so is the scott, one where the kinks scott, dig into scott their englishness me, yeah. scott asked me whether it was from arthur I and from I, arthur. I couldn't place it but yes i knew i'd heard it before and yeah johnny thunder you're well, right actually it's the next album which is the jam doing arthur but we'll get we'll get to that <laughs> right, <you were> setting <laughs> songs right but uh so yeah i mean it's got all these pieces uh dominic mentioned what that, that part that he just talked about is phenomenal that's probably my favorite little part of the song it lasts like 12 seconds and it's just mm. perfection uh half the song is this psychedelic last two and a half minutes or so with these echoed yeah. vocals and these squealing feedback guitars you can hear how someone like matthew sweet may have gotten some ideas from what was happening in the back end of in the crowd and before just as that part begins these huge crunching like pete townsend windmill-esque chords being slammed into that last portion of the song you have this callback at the very end to away from the numbers the song from their first album and you know lyrically about getting lost in this crowd and be being comfortable around other people and sort of forgetting your personal singular problems i love the the lines uh, sometimes i think that it's a plot an equilibrium melting pot the government sponsored underhand and the way weather delivers those I mean, that of... sounds, if anything, sounds a bit all right. Uh, you know, <laughs> when people suspect Wello of uh, having these secretive right wing leaders, yeah. that's a classic example. Well, I'm in the crowd, can't remember my name. And my only leak is past the walls I scream. When I'm in the crowd, I don't see anything. Sometimes I think that it's a plot. Not that I think there's anything to it. I think that he's a, he's a working class loyalist is what he is, which is not really a political thing at all. It's a social thing. But it's amazing, actually, how uh, repeatedly he's been uh, you know, accused, usually by the music press in England. Which, I mean, well, you know why? I'll, care, I'll, but... I'll tell you why. Because in his best moments, he, he's unmediated. He's actually mm -hmm. just conveying straight feelings without saying, what is someone going to feel? So a song like In the Crowd, you might be embarrassed to say that it feels great to just be a part of the masses. I shouldn't feel that way. 
He doesn't have that self-consciousness. It feels great, okay? You know why we know it does? Because masses exist, okay? It's empirically obvious that people enjoy it, okay? So that's why. And and, and he explains it in a way that you don't usually hear. It's a wonderful song. Yeah, and you get the full spectrum because, you know, you get this this joyous mod-like, you know, celebration of, of togetherness. But you also get the sense that things are really coming apart, as they were in England at that time. Right. It was an extremely nasty, violent time. It was dangerous to walk down the street. And down in the tube station at midnight, which was was a big hit, um, is a brilliant, brilliant song. And again, it, the, the lyrics could have been Oof. written by, by Philip Larkin if mm. he had been a, a teenage mod. Um, I should mention that Wormwood Scrubs is, is an old Victorian prison. That's where they threw Mick Jagger and Keith yes. Richards when they got arrested back in the day. It's a shame they let Mick Jagger out. Actually, yeah. But, <laughs> Um, and the lyric, I mean, we know this is about a man who's, who's attempting to take a, a tube train home, the last train, which in those days went at midnight, and he has a hurry takeaway. His wife is laying out the table, he knows, and he's being beaten up for some small change. And, and, the, and the brilliant, brilliant line goes, they smelt of pubs and wormwood scrubs and too many right wing meetings. And then later. Words, dang, 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 dang. Perfect. And this really could have been written by Larkin or, or John Betjeman or someone like that. The smell of brown leather, hmm. it blended in with the weather. These these are brilliant rhymes, you know, and pubs and women's grubs, it, leather and weather. This, okay. this is, you know, in fact, this is like poetry. And it, as you're saying, set to this powerful rock music. I first felt a fist and then a kick. Smell their breath They smell tough pubs And wormwood scrubs And too many right-wing routines My life swam around me It took a look and drowned me In its own existence The smell of brown leather Even in with the weather Though my eyes is not a mother blow To my senses couldn't see Okay, Dom, that song is a masterpiece that I am deeply uncomfortable listening to. Okay, I can tell you everything about it just sets me a grit, not because it's bad, but because it's so good. It's actually, yeah. unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's too good. It's, it's too nasty. good. Yeah. Okay, you, okay. You know what kills me? It's the kick drum. It's Buckler playing the, the, the defibrillated boom, 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 boom. It's your heartbeat as it quickens in the right channel. And you hear that. Like I hear that every time I hear it, whether I'm in a car, or I'm using headphones, or I'm listening on speakers, I'm like, something's wrong. Okay. <laughs> I am immediately, my, the hairs go up on the back of my neck. Mm-hmm. And those yeah. lyrics are so grim and yet real. They're not fake. They're not fake hysterics like, yeah, you know, they robbed the guy. They beat him, but they steal his wallet. It's like, ah, oh, we're going to let you drive his lesson. Go give your lady an old visit. Oh, it's so dis- upsetting. And mm. it's set to this incredible punk song that has got a great melody, great verse, chorus. And yet I'll never want to put it on because it just hurts too much because I understand everything it's about. And it's for me, at least I'm saying it's not a criticism of it. It's just actually too much to take. I fumble for change, I 
Merciless. It's merciless. And I give gotta give Will our credit for that. This is this is the album where I feel like he's actually kind of in this kind of heroic way wrestling with his muse. You see his 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 ambitions galloping forward, his abilities, his grasp is not yet you know within reach. Uh, he's reaching right. farther than, than he can grasp. So you have songs like Fly, where I think the music on Fly is one of the most beautiful things the jam ever did. Um, it begins with this beautiful acoustic opening riff, and then it goes into the long electric guitar, doo doo, and then it goes into a third second, you know, third moment. Beautiful suite of musical ideas. The lyrics never come together. Even their awkward rhymes. I think of the awkward rhymes on English Rose, which Weller was so embarrassed about that he actually didn't want to print on the album sleeve. And I understand why, because there's a delicate musical moment there, and then the lyrics don't come together. But yet... No, they don't. They don't. You're right. And also, there is a thing with the jam, which I think... No bums could ever take her from she or me. It's just like, it's like ungrammatical. It's it's, it's no good. But, but the thing is, is that simultaneously on this album, he is finding gears like down in the tube station, which is Larkin-esque, A-bomb and Water Street. And I'll tell you, the one I always tip to Scott is my favorite is Billy Hunt. Yeah. Billy mm. Hunt. I would have thought it was a Kinks song. That's the other thing. I thought Billy it was and it wasn't. I thought the other one was a Weller song and it was a Kinks song. <laughs> Billy Hunt is the beginning of what I think Paul Weller's greatness as a sketch artist is. This is the perfect character. You know this guy. Yeah. You met him. You worked with him in your job. You know, <laughs> if it's not you moaning, then it's someone else jumping down my throat every chance you get. And there's this great line. <laughs> this is great. This is a guy who's just like, you know, a nobody. He's like just an average bloke. He's getting pushed around. But, you know, he's got pride. He's a prickly guy. He's going to punch back when there's this fantastic line. Nobody pushes Billy Hunt around. Well, yeah, they do, but, but not, not for long. long. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> he's, he's arguing with his foreman on the job on the first day. And then the, uh, once he finally gets himself on, the whole world's going to wish you were born. Billy, and of course, it's just him saying his own name. Billy Hunt, Billy Hunt, Billy, yeah. Billy, Billy. It's, it's, it's intentionally rock-headed, and it is a brilliant encapsulation of, in music, in words, the person who you're asked to imagine in that song. And that is the moment for me, actually, when Paul Weller becomes... The Paul Weller, Paul Weller that I love with the jam. I remember the first day at my job. I didn't get on too well with a bum and buff. Do this, do that, down here on America. He used to be a sucker to the Yarega. No one pushes me behind two rounds. Will it do but not for long? Will I get beat and go by out of hands? Because the hell I was gonna wish you were born. Uh, melodically, musically, that's one that Green Day stole from liberally, which they did for many artists. But that's like American Idiot era Green Day, just taken right from Billy Hunt, which is again one of my favorite songs. If on you this combine record. the jam and the buzzcocks, yeah. you get Green Day, the, but diminished. The other thing I wanted to mention quickly about this album, which I, I beseech you to to listen to, and especially in the crowd, which which I, is my favorite. So I listened to it twenty two times this weekend. Um, but to be someone is another. Yeah. I, I, Didn't we have a nice time? I think you guys are a little hard yeah. on Weller's songwriting. I, I just want to point out. No, again, no, this is one of the ones where he's really because he's, he's, he's right, talking but, about how evanescent fame is. He's oh, like, yes, yeah, we were something, yes. and it's going to fade. And well, it was nice while it lasted. I, I just mean on the on the whole on this album, I think it's probably a little stronger than you guys do. And I, I, I again remind you, he's twenty. He's twenty years yes, old for all mod cons, and he has come so far in two years. Does he get better? Yeah, probably. But he's in really good shape here to be someone. Um, is as Jeff just t told you what it's about. You know this broken superstar. He, he's wishing he was famous. He is famous. Money's gone. He's wishing again. But it sounds. It is predicting. It is. It is pre. Uh, yeah, pre predicting like later, even later seventies kinks music. This is something that could be on Sleepwalker or low budget. It's very Ray Davis. Very late seventies arena rock kinks especially the part that jeff mentioned that didn't we have a nice time that 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 is totally yeah, well, dave that's dave davies music. yes yeah. and dave, dave davies is, is the uncle of all of that kind of stuff because he's the first lout to basically make <laughs> rock music and he's a genius but he invents the power chord more than uh, Townsend does for instance uh, dave davies is the unacknowledged uh, grandparent <laughs> of punk rock but it's true and this raises the question which i never thought about how carefully Ray Davies was listening to Weller while Weller was very carefully uh, listening. You know to what? Ray when Davis. Scott, okay, you know, Don, when Scott made that point to me because he, he did it in the DMs earlier, I had the same thought. It's like Sleepwalker influence. Why wouldn't it be? Like, why wouldn't why wouldn't he be listening to the Jam? It, it makes a lot of sense, in fact. No more reporters at my back and cool No more talking, now it's only cloud talk 
I don't know how, I, but here's the thing. I, as good as all mod cons is, and I, I, I mean, every song on this record is good. I, I didn't even mention It's Too Bad, which just like hilariously inserts She Loves You into the middle of it. You know, like, it's like, yeah, 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 those chords just right there. Why not? Because they fit. That's why they belong. They moved on from uh, what Scott already has tipped as his favorite album to what I believe are even greater strengths. And there are. Yeah. Few yeah. greater strengths than the non-album single. Right. This, we have to. We have to say something about. We have. Okay. You, go, go, okay. So yeah. this is the, all mod cons is the jam sending up their tent, and this is them spiking the peg home. Okay. <laughs> because this is strange town. This is one of the yeah. greatest from start to finish. Uh, I, I would love to take 45 minutes to explain every obscure British reference here. I can't, yeah. but uh, this is power pop. This is what I meant when I kept on selling uh, the jam to Scott. And I was like, listen, this is, you, you say you like Fountains of Wayne. Do you know Strange Town? You yeah. gotta know Strange Town. This is what I love about this band's soul much. What are you going to say, Dom? I, I was going to say this that in Strange Town, you begin to see the split that is going to develop in the jams music because strange town is composed of two different styles in effect hmm. the the bit where well is singing is pinned down by this motown stomp yeah right and the interludes uh are the clash 1978 sound and at some points when the drums go well that's the bit that the clash used on tommy gun it's the same uh, drum oh, roll. Holy so, Christ, you're right. I, yeah, I, yeah. I had, and no, if you no, listen no. to how the uh, the solo guitars are positioned in the mix as being far too loud in in the way, say, of <laughs> Iggy and the Stooges, Search and Destroy, which I think is what The Clash would think of. The Clash's 1978 sound, when they were also redefining themselves by making non-album singles, is shadowing the, the sound of these Weller singles. But yeah. you can hear it in Strange Town, and that's what I think makes it the breakthrough track, that there's you can hear the two elements, and it's almost like two types of song have been welded together. When it's just the band, they sound like a punk band. But as soon as Weller's singing, they're sounding like a 60s soul band. And eventually this split will become unmanageable. Right now, it's the perfect fusion. Scott, it, it becomes their template that you have these two things going on together. And gradually, Weller learns how to combine them so they're actually happening at the same time rather than in Strange Town, they're alternating. I got to talk about the lyric of this song, too, though. Like, I just yeah. love every little bit about it. It was like, I found myself in a strange town, though. I've only been here for three weeks now. I've got blisters in my feet trying to find a friend on Oxford Street. I bought an A to Z guidebook, oh, A to Z guidebook, yeah. <laughs> trying to find friends in, in YMCA's, which is, you know, again, references that are probably lost 
Uh, but my, my favorite line is, they say, when you ask for help in a strange town, mm-hmm. they say, don't know, don't care, and I got to go, mate. That's you know, exactly and, what and, they say, yeah. And they worry themselves <laughs> about everything else in their lives. And from start to finish, to, to, but you go through the, that final ascending, dun, 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 the guitar line, that's not Clash there at the end when they say, break it up, break it up, bring it up, break oh, it up. Oh, that's so Clash to me. Oh, I mean, it is Clash, but it's better than anything the Clash ever did in that Ooh. era. That's oh, I mean, to me that to me that is one of my favorite jam moments, and I get the influence, but that to me is the perfection of the form. Scott, do you well, have any yes, thought? it is. They did it cleaner and faster. I think that's definitely the case. Straight there's a lot of space. There's a lot of space in that. Song. Yeah, even though there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of empty space. Actually, a couple of non-album singles here. There's this, and it has a great B-side called The Butterfly Collector, which I'm not sure Scott paid much attention to. But that Psychedelic was ballad, again. I mean, this I'm really branching out. Right. Now, before I move on, do you have any thoughts about Strange Town, Scott? Or, or are you just going to accept that I think it's one of the greatest songs <laughs> of the late 70s? I, you know, I was engulfed in so much great music that I don't know if Strange Town might not even make my top five, and yet it is. An outstanding song. This, this feelings of of uh, alienation and like you guys said, you can't get directions. You got to wear the right clothes. You can't be weird in a strange town. But the point, I guess, I, I would make that I don't think you guys have talked about yet is how in two short years you go from in the city where there's so many things I want to show you in the city to strange town where you're in the big city and you don't feel right and you can't find friends and you don't feel like you belong. There's a very uh, there's a big shift in perspective. In 24 mm-hmm. months or so, on on, on well, Paul Weller's well, behalf. Well, how about a couple months That's later? Good. How about a couple months later when, on when you're young, Paul Weller tells you that it's all it's all a lie, and you might think you're a king, but you're really a pawn <laughs> when you're young. Uh, which is the other non-album single that precedes yeah. the next record. And oh gosh, again, if I'm in danger of overpraising the jam, let it be yeah. in this era because I love When You're Young. Yeah, this is one of my favorite jam songs of all. Great. When we're talking about these albums and which is the best and so on, they are in the position that you're in with the Beatles where some of their best songs don't get onto the album. They fall on the cracks, yeah. Yeah, yeah like, like Britain, Britain and America had, yeah. we had very different aesthetics. Britain and America, Britain believed in the non-album single, you were ripping off people if you were like, you know, combining them both for the most part. In America, it's, yeah, like everybody buys albums, you know. So it was, it was very different aesthetics and Britain kept it alive well into the 90s. And my theory is that if, if Strange Town and When You Were Young and Butterfly Collector had been on the next album, we would talk about that as the great right. jam album. Oh, easy, for sure. But they weren't. But they weren't. <laughs> when You're Young is such an embittered... So first of all, it, again, you have this vague Motown drive to them. You have to talk about just the pure elemental force of a trio attack. There's three, I, I've heard this song played live. I've heard it played at the BBC. 
heard it played a hundred times, I guess, you know, in various bootlegs, it's the same song. Uh, they made that sound authentically. There's a couple of overdubs here and there. But that giant feedbacking scream when it gets to the chorus where, like, you know, you know, you don't mind when you've got time on your side. They're never going to make you stand in line. You're just waiting for the right time. Oh, ho, ho, when you're young. But no, that's not really the way it works at all, my friend. And it's that that hint of disillusionment and jadedness setting in on this song uh, that is going to really kind of define the next album afterwards. It is, and maybe one reason why When You're Young isn't on that now next album is because it does have a track. I think it's Thieves. Thieves, it sounds exactly like it. Yes, pretty much the same song. Yes, I, thank you for pointing that out. I've always thought the same. And by the way, they're both on Snap, and I thought that was a mistake. It's like, why are you pointing out the fact that you just recycled? Uh, this mm. really not, not, not only not only is it a song. I, if I had to, it's not girl. It's like the second song on the record. <laughs> I think they made the right decision in a sense that when you're young is more catchy, and so it's uh, better as a single. Mm. Though thick as these, I think, is actually a subtler song, and is therefore the kind of thing you could put onto an album. So this brings package. well, this brings us to setting songs. And actually, Dom, you know, do you want to set this one up? You want to explain what it was Weller was trying to go for here, and how it kind of like resulted in the album we have. Well, yes, we, we were talking about Weller's return to the kinks as part of the way out of his dilemma after um, reaching a, a dead end with the US tour and the early Who sound. And he pursued that success in a way by following the kinks development from uh, the Village Green, very um, nostalgic English sound, to Arthur, which is the concept album about Ray Davies' childhood, and it's one of the best Kinks albums. And Setting Sun, no. which came out yes. in November, oh yes, it yes. came out in November 1979, began as a concept album about three friends reuniting after a war. I only found this out when I was doing the research for this recording. Before that, and, and I, I just assumed it was about the First World War and its effects. On well, because of that life. statue on the cover. Okay, you know what? I had too, and then because I'd rated it lower. Than, the, than I do now because I thought it was just supposed to be like a concept album about World War One, and then I was like why does this album end with love is like a heat wave it's like well that doesn't I, that makes no sense when you think of it as just a collection of songs it's one of the jam's greatest albums when you think of it as a concept album it's not going to work I actually feel like the thing that works against setting songs the most is the cover because the cover is so evocative and it makes you think of a narrative that isn't quite there. Go to our side and so is Washington. Come on, 
I'll sing you a lullaby. A tale, a tale, how goodness prevailed. We ruled the world, we killed and robbed the fucking lot. But we don't feel bad. It was dumb belief, the flag of democracy. Yeah, for me, and I should say, the cover is, um, and again, I only found this out now, it's a statue called the St. John's Ambulance Bearers, made in 1919, in memorial to the ambulance crews of the First World War. This was the first jam album that I owned as a kid, and I thought it was a statue of Weller being supported by Butler and Foxton. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it isn't. Um, but maybe that tells us something. It is and it isn't about this. And to my mind, the best songs on it are not really the songs uh, which are quite obviously about war, which even have exploding shell noises and things like that going on in the background. To my mind, the best songs um, address the, the huge changes of the 20th century in British life um, indirectly. And, and they are, I think, Thick as Thieves and Eaton Rifles. Um, Thick as Thieves is uh, like... Um, when you're young it's it's well uh, looking back in effect at the, the youthful friendships and the, and and the maturity and the limits and and the the sorrow that comes with recognizing that and again there's i don't know if anyone could write an opening line as good as times were so tough but not as tough as they are now which is just you know brilliantly done and you know thick as thieves is is a colloquialism it's how you describe close friends but thieves are also, as you were saying, England, thick, as in a bit dumb, stupid, <laughs> foolish, having no idea, really, what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to be thick as thieves, in other words, in that youthful way, it, it's youthful folly, naivety, stupidity, stupidity, romance, whatever you want to call it. And the song ends with this, you know, recognition, we're no longer as thick as thieves. No, we're not as thick as we used to be. In other words, we're no longer friends and we're no longer naive either. We've lost both our illusions and our friendships. And that, to me, seems to be so resonant with the, the, the way people wrote about and speak about Britain after the First World War, where hundreds of uh, young men volunteered into what were called lads' regiments or lads' brigades and all died together on the same day at the Battle of the Somme. You know, this is this terrible psychological wound where the trust of the working class and the people who are meant to be their betters was exploited and, and they died for it. And I think that song is about that, which is a long-running and quite unacknowledged sorrow in fish life. Just go. 
this reckoning with class loyalty and what togetherness means and what being thick as in being together with your nation and your people means also runs through Eton Rifles. I have long thought about Setting Sons as the album, uh, you know, just as I talked about All Mod Cons as the album where uh, Weller's songwriting just on a melodic and structural sense runs ahead of his lyrical abilities. This is the one where his lyrical abilities run ahead of his actual songwriting. Oh, that's a very good point. I think, I think, I think you could make that case, yeah, because musically it's, it's quite predictable. Musically, it's a little more predictable than I'd like, but this lyrics, as you just said, Thick of Thieves is a, a double pun uh, worthy of all mod cons in the sense that, yeah, yeah, we were best friends and also idiots. And we've, <laughs> and, and to be able to work that so casually in, 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 into a song is amazing. But the one that to me kind of, I suppose, has always epitomized the compromise of setting suns is a song no one talks about. It's called Wasteland. That's my favorite song on the album. I love Wasteland. <laughs> Weirdly produced. It has like you know, recorders and a lot of echoed guitars. The melody is there, but it's never like fully realized on the production. But that lyric is maybe one of the most heartbreakingly perfect things that Paul Weller will ever write. When he's talking about the wastelands, when he's talking about the wastelands, my first thought, again, when I got this album, I was like, is that the World War I no man's land? No, it's not. It's actually just the garbage dump. You know, we like bombed out Britain, probably post-World War II Britain of all things. Mm -hmm. You know, where they're just like, you know, meet me on the wastelands later this day. We're going to sit and talk and, and we'll hold hands maybe because there's not yeah. much else to do in, in this England, uh, yeah. this place. Those kind of areas, they're known colloquially as the waste. There you As go. It beats this kind of unused, sort of rather run-down piece of land that no one seems to own. Yeah, and, and there's just that beautiful line where it says, we'll watch the rainfall, watch it tumble and fall. Tumble and falling like our lives, just like our lives. That, to me, is the moment where Weller actually achieved poetry. Without having to say what he's talking about, he alludes to that feeling of sort of well, what are we doing in this world, in this slipstream? We're just mm. tumbling through it. We don't have agency. We're just sort of sitting here on the mound, the pile of rubble and observing it and trying to find a human connection. It's the most brilliant lyric I think he ever wrote, and yet I don't love the song. No. <laughs> and that to me has always been the conundrum of setting sun. You know, there are songs on here like um, Private Hell, which is just so angry and so mm -hmm. aggressive. You know, this is a great song. Saturday's Kids, 
Um, Little Boy Soldiers is the one where I think he tries too hard, right? Because yeah. you know, it's just like yeah. you know, has he? There's the, he, they played it live because Weller was so committed to the conceit, he refused to to give it up. He wanted it to be a live song for the band too. But like, yeah, it's like yeah, too many things. Little Boy Soldiers, yes, I get it. It's it's a bit on the nose. But then you get songs like Thickest Thieves, you get songs like Wasteland, Burning Sky, and even Smithers Jones, which isn't written by Weller at all. It's, it's Bruce Fox the number, uh, and and that's where I just think of the lyrical vision of this band actually shocking me just like once you're able to sit down and get through the thick accents and look at the texts and internalize them they're on about so much there it's that sort of light clicks on moment you usually have usually reading literature we're like oh well, wow yeah, we, we have to talk to yeah we have to talk about uh, eaten rifles oh yes that's where that. you go yeah now now a bit of historical backgrounding is this eaton college is is you know the fanciest boys school in england which has produced more prime ministers than any other including david cameron and Boris Johnson recently. Apparently, it, if you if you trust Wellington, that's where all Britain's wars were won. It's apocryphal that he said that. <laughs> he didn't go there. Actually, maybe he did. Wouldn't have surprised me if he did. And anyway, um, it's in Windsor where the royal family live. It's the height of you know the English class system, and next door to it, and not far away is Woking, where Weller's from. But next door to Eton is a modern new town called Slough, and John Betjeman in 1937. Uh, wrote a poem, and Betjeman was one of the great Victorian revivalists, you know, and, and a, a great romantic about the past in the way that Weller sometimes is. Betjeman wrote, Come friendly bombs and fall on slough. It isn't fit for humans now. There isn't grass to graze a cow. Swarm over death. That was his, you know, aesthetic view of slough, which like Woking was one of those towns on the periphery of London which yeah, but listen there's a reason there's a reason that 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 John Bunyan refers to the slough of despair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not a place you'd like to live. Right. Now the story goes that um in this, you know, the social disturbances of the late 1970s um the Socialist Workers' Party used to organize things called the Right to Work marches and one of them uh, went through Windsor and there was a set to, as we say in England, between the socialist workers and some of the boys from Eton College who came out in their, you know, old fashioned school outfits. And basically, as we also say in England, ran the Socialist Workers Party and drove them out of town. And uh, the, li- the opening lyrics, I mean, again, just full march to Weller. Sup up your beer and collect your fags. There's a row going on down in Slough. Now, John Betjeman contrasts, you know, Slough with the, the what used to be the green fields it was built on, because he rhymes cow with Slough. And Weller refers to social trouble, to violence. There's a row going on down in Slough. And a row, again, is one of those euphemistic slang terms, which basically means people fighting in the street. Street riots, it's, it's, yes. It's not, it's not a verbal uh, disputation. It, it's, a, it's a fight. And, of course, what happens is that, uh, you know, the, the good guys lose in this case, as, as he sees it. And, and he said, and he basically said, you're fated. And just as those, um, you know, uh, lads who signed up for the First World War followed their betters over the top and were fooled. In this case, you know, they were beaten again, as he says, all that rugby puts hairs on your chest. What chance have you got against a tie and a crest? Which, you know, is, is a John Betjeman phrase. It's astonishing to me how close 
the feel of what Weller's saying is. It's like an amped up John Betjeman, if you can imagine such a thing. But it, but also his contempt for sort of posh uh, revolutionaries, well-bred folks oh, yeah. who are eager to get into the fight, where he says, composed a revolutionary yeah. symphony, then went to bed with a charming well, young this, thing. this verse has actually been referred to frequently in Britain uh, regarding uh, Boris Johnson's role in leading oh, yeah. Brexit and then, and then basically blowing it. And it was his fellow Etonian, David Cameron, who, who also blew it by giving the people a chance to have a referendum in, in thinking that they would vote with him. And in fact, they turned against him. And so as it says... Well, Cameron also well, blew it by actually confessing that he loves... He said it was rifles. his favorite... Yes, he said it was one of his favorite songs. And Weller basically said something unprinted. Do you know what this song yeah. is about? <laughs> yeah, do you know? Yeah. And, and as the song says... Thought you were clever when you lit the fuse, tore down the House of Commons in your brand new shoes. Well, that's what David Cameron actually went on to do, you know, 20, 30 years after this song was written. It's a deeply, deeply perceptive song. It is, no, it's even deeper than that, though, Dom. There's something so deep about the middle eight, which I think is the pivot of the song, which is that line where, where, where Weller sings, what a catalyst you turned out to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you you lit the fuse, then you ran off home to your tea. You left me naughty. You left me standing like a guilty or naughty schoolboy. Yeah, Basically, that, by the like way, you, yeah. you, you can go home. You have no consequences. Yeah. But me, me, Pudnucker out here in the streets, I got no name. I got no, co- I got no connections. And this, I'm the one who's going to yeah, get hurt for it. For, this, for your I've got, I, yeah. <laughs> I've got this. And this is also the climacteric of Evelyn Waugh's Sword of Honor trilogy, which is yeah. about the collapse of the officer class's credibility militarily and socially in the second world war that there is the scene where one of the men in the, as they're retreating in crete one of the etonian officers who's the the guy that war's protagonist admires more than any other says do you think it's all right if we run away now <laughs> you know it's it's exactly that and and the last lines are, are the lines rather like the uh, thicker thieves or when you were young of, of realizing you've been you've fooled yourself or been fooled or been let down by your own illusions because he said, and again, this could be written by Philip Larkin. We came out of it naturally, the worst, the worst, Be- yes, beaten and bloody. And I was sick down my shirt. We were no match for their untamed wit. wit. Though some of the lads said they'd be back next week. And the Eton Rifles sounds like a regiment. You know, my great grandfather, in fact, served in the Artists' Rifles in the First World War, but it's not a regiment. So this is a, a First World War, Second World War song. I mean, it narrates the entire social change that takes place in Britain, which is a failure for the people who led it. And no wonder that it's come back into circulation now, because the ruling class has again failed to rise to the job that it's created for itself. 
Scott, any thoughts on on setting suns before we move on? Do you do you think that 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 cover of Heat Wave is a failure? I actually think it's I don't. Damn good. I, I, uh, <laughs> I think reading, it's really good. Reading a bit, it seems like people do think that that it's a weird sort of because, because nobody accepts it as it. Well, why is this the last song on an album with these heavy lyrics about this important right. subject? And then like, love's like a heat wave. It's a Pete Townsend cover from the Who, uh, a quick one from 1966. Let me say a couple of things. You guys talked about a whole lot of good stuff from this album. One thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is uh, this album is stronger as it goes. And I had, had, had uh, asked Jeff, is it, is it intentional that all these jam albums actually get better the longer they go, deeper you go into the album? That's not front-loaded. The, the great songs are, are deep into uh, what, what would then be, you know, beginning of side two or, or into, into side two of, of the record. Here, I disagree with Jeff. I think Waste, Wasteland's my favorite song on the album. And I, Good. I, I I'm, think glad, that, I'm glad you think that, because I'd love that lyric. Yeah, I, I think that lyric is great. I think that the melody is great, too. The, this this very pretty melody set to this tune of just desolation and depression. Um, Smithers-Jones we haven't talked about at all, other than just a passing mention. So I'll take the time to say that it's a fantastic song. It's Foxton's best written song for the band by by quite a bit, I think. And this string arrangement on the record, which is not quite in keeping with the jam, is perfect. It's perfect. There is a, there's a different arrangement you can find on the box set that Jeff gave. It's the single. Is it, it the it's, single the, it's, it, it's, it's the B-side to When You're Young. That's right. They did That's an album version. Okay, so like, remember, okay, this is worth noting. And if I had failed to mention Smithers-Jones, I might have had to commit suicide after the episode. So <laughs> thank you for reminding me. Okay, so this is a song that was originally just simple trio band arrangement because that's the jam aesthetic. And it's pretty good as the B-side of When You're Young. But I, I don't know if Dom has a different opinion. Scott and I are certainly on the same page. But when they decided to rearrange it for strings, yeah. that's the one. Oh, my God. It's so superior. It's a lovely arrangement. Um, it, it is it, a good it, song. It's and it propulsive. fits those, those mod songs in which they, like Mr. Clean by Weller, um, in which they attack the the kind of pinstriped, bowler-hatted businessman. Um, and again, John Betjeman could have written and get that man with double chin who will always we cheat and always win. I mean, that that is uh, pure English class resentment poetry. It is a good song. I, I think the thing about it is that the propulsion of the string arrangement is what mm-hmm. impressed me so much because it's like uh, it's not your normal like uh, we're going to just throw a pitch across. We're going to do the orchestral move. It sounds like a trio, a power trio done with strings. There's a dun 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 Everything has clean, straight lines. When when he says, you know, I've got some news to tell you, there's no longer a position for you. Sorry, Smithers Jones. That little that little breakdown where all of the strings duet with one another. Um that's 
I don't know. I don't know how that works, but that is, again, one of these impending signs of the jam's evolution that you're going to hear from sound effects and onwards. I don't think so. I'm just uh, I'm so thrilled that it came, of all things, from Foxton, who's probably, in my opinion, the most underrated part of the band. Everyone obviously focuses on Weller. Oh, his bass lines are so important. I, the way yeah. he plays. But his vocals, he sings. He's like that guy who sings um, kind of like on Blur, where you don't realize Graham Coxon is singing half of those famous songs you like. He sings a lot more than you realize on Chance. Okay. But you were going to say, Scott? Um, I, I think that's all from the, the album I did want to mention uh, the B-side to the Eaton Rifles single which is a song called yeah, Seesaw, Seesaw which I think is fantastic it's a fabulous song and it is completely it's, forgotten it's a love song of sorts it's it's broken love but there's not I mean there's not a lot of love songs in this catalog this is one of them big power moves I, I love the the, the the music matches the lyric, this, the seesaw back and forth. You sort of get that motion happening with, with the music. And the lyrics are, are, are so good, too. When I'm, when I'm walking down a rainy street, I think I hear you calling out to me, but it's just an echo I've arranged to meet. That feeling of going going to the places you used to go, you know, that remind me of you. And the, but it's something that, that it, you've constructed yourself, not that's happening organically as, as he's dealing with this seesaw of relationship. And again, set to it, just a wonderful set of, of music that echoes the sort of back and forth of, of, of the love. That's a fantastic song, Lost on a B-side. Very quickly, though, before I move on to uh, what I... Is it my favorite jam album? I think I'm going to say this two times. I'm going to favorite jam songs, favorite jam albums. I'm going to uh, violently oscillate here. But is Going Underground, hmm. the non-album single that comes between Setting Suns and their next record, 
it may be very close to a personal motto for me. And I think it's hilarious because he wrote it. Paul Weller, of course, wrote it in a reaction to Thatcherism. And I'm writing it, and I adopt it in a reaction to basically everything about, well, this is the modern world. I'm going underground. Some people might, you know, some people have so much time for hate, but me, I've enough already on my plate. I think between Strange Town and going underground, you find the essence of the jam as a singles act. Perhaps not as an album act, but as a singles act. These are two ten pegs that just, uh, to me, define the band. Well, I would say that going underground is to the jam as uh, Strawberry Fields is to the Beatles, which is, it's an album, and it's not on any album, and it's better than anything that's on the albums either side of it. Underground to me is one of the best songs ever recorded yep. by any rock band. It's there probably you if you, if you had to put a song by a British group, you know, maybe after the Beatles, in a capsule and send it to the moon, I would send Going Underground, and it would tell you everything you need to know about the people who sent it. And it is the most powerful, perfectly controlled piece of musical performance. It's brilliant, uh, and as I, I mean, I, I listen to it all the time regularly. And it's, it's, as you're saying, the, the, it boils down this role that Weller has played in certainly in, in British life of, of being this inspirational figure. Um, the, the underground, I mean, the pun obviously here is the nuclear bunker. At the time, I, mean, I remember it well, everyone was terrified of nuclear war. We had no idea that the Cold War was going to turn out well. In fact, in the 1980s, it seemed to intensify and we all expected uh, to be vaporized. Um, so going on, did you ever grow up on watching When the Wind Blows and stuff like that? You know, yeah, like, yeah. And in fact, the school I was at, we we uh, we played, uh, you know, rugby. Um, above, you know, hundreds of feet below us, was NATO's Western European Command Center. <laughs> so it was kind of buried beneath oh, the golf yeah. course next door, and and we used to joke about it and say, well, at least when it happens, you know, we're not going to suffer because we'll be in the first strike. <laughs> you know, when we were thirteen or something, and this is the mentality. So there was a lot of this about, and as you're saying, it was about Thatcherism, about not wanting to be part of the remaking of English society, which, as Weller correctly saw, the old working class had been brought to its knees by, by economic failure over several decades, and something did have to change. And Weller, of course, was part of that change in his way, as he became more of an espresso drinker and, and more, more jazzy and continental. Um, but it was a terribly painful thing, and it wasn't well managed. It was done with a, a lot of vindictive uh, cruelty on the part of, of the Thatcherites. Right? They may have had justice on their side, but they weren't always decent about it. So all of this is in this song. And the underground is, of course, also the tube, which he's sung around before, the London Underground. Plus, 
It's Dostoevsky. It's the alienated individual, yes. the underground yes, it's man. Notes from underground. Yes. Yeah. And it's that mod figure again. He said, "We talk and we the talk rebel, until my you... head explodes." Right. You know, and, and the alienation from media when he talks about the braying sheep on my TV screen. And, and this is somebody who's, you know, the hippies, of course, uh, cut themselves loose from society. Uh, but they didn't go underground. They went out into the outdoors and they and they went looking for a sort of naivety in a way. This is the opposite of that. This is about digging in and digging in with your stuff and, and hoping that the nuclear winter will pass. But he's also smart enough to beg the question because, you know, he says the public gets what the public wants and also the public wants what the public right. gets. Well, this <laughs> so, is, like, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's a chicken and the egg issue here. Where's this circle begin? I'm just quitting. I'm quitting and I'm going to leave and I don't want to have anything to do with your nonsense. And I will just post my notes from here. And he was <laughs> under tremendous pressure as, as all uh, sort of independent or punk-related acts were. Well, it was under tremendous pressure to stake out the political position and, in, and to be a good socialist in particular. The music press in Britain at the time was very influential and could make or break independent Yeah, bands they really, they're brutal and cruel. Oh, God. And they, and they mean, were very much a bunch of kind of left-wing intellectuals demanding that he he sign up, in other words, for the, for the workers' revolution. Um, and I think Robert Fripp still, Robert Fripp still refers to the new musical respect, new musical express as the enemy, just because yeah. they're the actual opponent. <laughs> yeah, they were certainly the enemy of a lot of good music, and um, <laughs> you know that part appears in the first Sex Pistols single, in fact, in uh, Anakin, right. in the UK. I, I use the enemy. <laughs> Um, but there's a switch, between, as, as Scott was saying, between saying the public gets what the public wants, means, you know, in a democracy you demand things and the government serves you. But then he turns it around and says the public wants what the public gets. In other right. words, and they're they fed. actually, this is the stuff they want. They want the strong leader. They want, as he's saying, kidney machines being replaced by rockets and guns. You know, this is the irrationality of, of democracy that H.L. Um, Mencken you know, but he says democracy is when people get what they want and they get it good and hard. Right. <laughs> and and Weller, being a thinking man, Weller is saying, I don't get what this society wants. He's completely baffled that people would be so foolish. And it, 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 to me, it, it's, I mean, just speaking personally, this is where the jam cemented their personal affiliation with me. This is why I love them. It was, I understand where Weller comes from understand the the context the politics all of that this is a universally adoptable lyric this is a plastic lyric that can mean you it can mean what you need it to mean in the same sense of that wherever the consensus is i do not want to be owned or adopted or suborned by it yeah. and if i object to it i do not have to participate i can simply opt out
Yeah, and the Jam and are a very visual group, deliberately, and often there's a temptation, especially Great now. video. This is a great yeah, exactly. video. They look fantastic, and sometimes yeah. it's better actually just to listen to the music and let it do the talking. But in this yeah. case, I do recommend the video. I love watching them jump around on this. <laughs> and, you know, by the way, you talk about politics and influences. I think it's very telling that this is the point, in my mind, where the Jam moves from the Kinks as their primary influence into, I guess, their what what we call it the Beatles maturity phase yes there is some similarity I think between uh, going underground and say um, paperback Not, writer when there's right this, this, because this okay, yeah, I, I, you, you, sound. it's actually boy that's a beautiful analogy because that's a, a, an intentionally insouciant song about nothing in particular <laughs> uh, it's a song about I'm here I, I'd like to write books and so you, we get sound effects, which, by the way, is nothing like that. It's a lot of political commentary on this album. Sonically, however, this is the one where they, I guess, go quasi-psychedelic, I would say. Definitely. But, uh, but really deep in their influences. And, I, you know, if Scott says that All Mod Cons is the best jams album, I, I think I'm going to say sound effects is. And uh, I don't know where we would like to start. It doesn't matter if we never There's a lot there. Well, we should start with Start, which is, you know, the single. And uh, I saw it took me a while to get to that. Um, start is lifted from, everyone says, from, uh, you know, the man. man on the yes. on revolver. But actually, I, when I was listening back to all these tracks, I heard the Start bass line, a.k.a. the Taxman bass line, on To Be Someone. It's actually uh, used very briefly, but it's definitely in there. So obviously the band have been, you know, playing with this for quite oh, a while. The impulse is also equally abundant on Pretty Green, by the way. I mean, mm. It's a similar kind of, it's not the, the same melodic line, but mm -hmm. it's the same attack. Yeah. Um, and when I heard Start as, as a kid, I was actually quite taken aback by it. And it took time to grow on me because it was less obvious and it was quite, I suppose the word is astringent. There's a yes. very hard quality to it, a deliberate bitterness to it in the way the sounds are arranged. It's slightly too trebly. There's a huge and amount of space. the lyrics, and that's what I like about it. The lyrics match that astringent sound. Yeah, and I, I, there's a sort of very druggy feel to it as well. This was all the things that, that, that there really wasn't in the jam sound before. So there is a definite shift with sound effects, which comes out in late 1981. And in fact, this shift towards psychedelia is going on generally at the time. There was a bit of a kind of psychedelic rock revival at the time. Um, and indeed, it went on all through the 80s until house music arrived and sort of wiped the floor with that. If you went to London in 1985, 86, you would hear there was there were psychedelic rock clubs. A lot of the indie bands sounded like American garage. Uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was all due to Robert Smith 
Smith and the Cure and you know and Susie and the Banshees. They brought all that psychedelic yeah. stuff in. Yeah, you can hear it also on uh, the Black Album by the Damned in 1980, yeah. which uh, creates a sort of link up between early goth mm-hmm. music and the psychedelic revival. Sure. So. Um, I realize in retrospect, of course, this is what's going on in Star. But it, it is, you're right, well, it goes to a, to a different and, and more sophisticated level uh, on this album. I don't know if it's his best, I, 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 but uh, it's very good. There's something about the sourness of Star that has always compelled me. It is such a compellingly bitter song. <laughs> okay, listen, listen. It, for knowing that someone in this life loves with a passion called hate, that's a start. Yeah, and it is not important for you to know my name, nor I don't know yours. It's if we communicate for two minutes only, it'll be enough to know that someone in this world feels as desperate as me. Okay, that's that's the message of start. It's a start if we can just commiserate about how unhappy we are as people, and yet it sits to that you know. Taxman riff and then the horns right at the end. And what you give is what you get. Which is almost Stax Bolt coming in at the last yeah. second. Hint of things to and, come. And that lyric is basically, you know, that's where the Beatles ended. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I, but when we talk about the jam, it's not just the music. It really, I was, I've been very concerned here to focus on the power of Weller's lyrics. And there is something about the song Start that far more even than that's entertainment, which is the one that people focus on on this album, uh, that to me conveys sort of the dismal anger of this era of British life. This naked naked anti-socialism. Just like, I don't want to know. If we can commune about how pissed off we are about everything else, that's enough. That's enough. Um, That's brilliant in its own way. This is another great album. I think the string and you throw in the singles that we've talked about. I mean, it, it's just uh, it's a very short period of time. Clearly, the albums were coming out much quicker around this th- these years. But there is a, 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 a big winning streak, big winning streak. And um, yeah, I would mention you know, on, the, on start. It also kind of rips off the solo from Taxman, too. That kind of atonal almost uh, solo from Taxman makes an appearance and start as well. There are really good portions of this album. I like the lead-off track a lot, Pretty Green, and I think that's another good set of weather lyrics. Well, Pretty Green is money. Uh, pretty you, Green. You, 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 talk about a reference that's totally, you have to explain to American audiences. It's, yeah. uh, I got a lot of Pretty Green cash, but that's not a, a colloquialism that anyone understands outside of a footnote in here. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, he put, puts it in the jukebox, puts it in the slot machines. You can't... Puts it in the fruit machine, too. I don't know yeah. what that is. What is a fruit machine, Don? Fruit machine, know? yeah. It's one of those, um, what do you call them, one-armed bandits, do you call them that? Yeah. It's you know, slot machine. Flashing lights slot and the wheels. Okay, it's a yeah. roulette machine. I yeah. had no idea. Okay, yeah. good, wonderful. But uh, to me, Pretty Green is also talking about, I suspect, a bag of weed, judging from the psychedelic yeah. turn that they've taken. Sure. And he's also talking about naivety as well, because being Pretty Green is, sure. you know, yeah. Again, double, triple puns. Yeah, triple, yeah. triple puns. Thing. It's not that's my favorite well song in... on the album. 
Um, but, but but there was, there was the leg- legend- the legendarily, there was like this thing where they, the, the band would play Pretty Green and start to people say, which should be the lead single. And I, I think that the record label wanted Pretty Green, but it, Weller's friend said, make it start. And that was their first number one hit. For me, the best track on this, and again, I like the sounds on the albums, but I don't, this album, but I don't think Sound Effects has, has so many great songs on it. But to me, they, they, as you're saying, that's entertainment, mm-hmm. which Weller says he wrote in 10 minutes after coming back from the pub. Um, that's entertainment, again, positions him for me in the line of um, this slightly grim English poetry of the 20th yes. century. Yeah. And, you know, T.S. Eliot, John Betjeman, Philip Larkin, songs like For No One by Paul McCartney. And then, and that's entertainment is absolutely in that line. And if and if I had to pick a single line from it, because every image on it this is beautiful. Yeah, we're, we're going to pick competing lines here, Don. We'll go. You you choose mine yours. Is, mine is this: feeding ducks in the park and wishing you were far away. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's brilliant. <laughs> I love. Okay, uh, I I love the line: two lovers kissing amongst the scream of midnight, two lovers missing the tranquility of solitude. I just say, like, where I would give anything to be in a place where I could be alone with someone who I loved and not have to hear the the din, the misery of the modern city, the pneumatic that, drill. The pneumatic drill, the ripped-up concrete, the baby wailing, the stray dog howling—that's entertainment. Is a song that the jam never fat, never fully settled on a final arrangement for. It's, it's kind of hilarious. There are like three well-known alternate versions of it. There's the album version on sound effects. There's the demo that came out on Snap, and then there's the alternate demo, which, uh, as I pointed out to Scott, I strongly prefer, and I believe is the the definitive version. Yeah, that's but good. it's only. It's only on direction reaction creation. It's basically the full band. Mm-hmm. Drums, bass, guitar, nothing else. Waking up on badges and smoking cigarettes. Cutting on walk on and smelling self-perfume. A hot summer's day and sticky back guitar. Pretty ducks in a park and wishing you were far away. That's I think in that in that confusion over how to develop the song 
we're seeing the, the big problem surfacing, which is that Weller's musical ambitions and talent oh, right. are starting to eclipse the, the, the competence of the band. <clears throat> Partic- I mean, we referred to the slight, what I think is the jerky drumming on the cover of Heatwave. I think it's a little fast. Um, and at various points at this point, and for instance, um, on the single issued after Sound Effects, Absolute Beginners. You know, yeah, Absolute Beginners um, has this slightly pushing drums that don't sit right. And the bass is slightly too heavy. It's not, I mean, Fockton plays the notes that a funk or soul player would play, but the attack of them is very rock. They're, they're slightly ahead of the beat again. Everything is, is, is pulling too fast when it should be sitting on the back of the beat. Okay, well, it, it's, it's funny because I will talk about Absolute Beginners in a second, and actually I mm. like that I like that song for all the oh, reasons I love the song. that you, I love that song. you don't. It's, it's those awkward, weird push-pull mm. frictions that actually make it more interesting than any real Motown kind of attempt would be because they are white London Brits trying to do this music <laughs> and get it, and I get that on on on, on sound affects. You know, you, you have like songs like that's entertainment over there. What, what's the there's you got a version with backwards guitar. You got a version with everybody on drum stools just playing percussion or acoustic instruments. You got a full band version. What you have though is those lyrics. You have those lyrics where like he is still plying and scraping away at a conceit that I find to be it's so strange to say this as a man who uh, born in Washington DC 1980 um, trying to relate to a world that I did not understand in the same year I was born I look at a song like Man in the Corner Shop Mm -hmm. and I get so many different meanings out of it the only reason this song will not make my top five at the end of the show is because the album will and I think it's maybe the greatest song they ever wrote. Um, It'll be on my five. Is, I'll, I'll pick you up. It's fine. <laughs> uh, this is this is a song where um, it, I don't even know how I can do justice to it because every aspect of it, musically and lyrically, just beguiles me. It opens with these suspended notes where Buckler holds the or not Buckler Foxen holds the high notes on the bass while Weller descends on this guitar riff that will become the recurring motif, and then he sings a song about. You know, a guy who just puts up the shop. I'm closed. End of the day. And then we have a narrative about everyone else in the town just thinks like, I'd like to be that guy or I wouldn't like to be that guy. Actually, I work in the factory. I'd like to be the, the guy who owns the factory. You have all these people, different levels of class, place and time. And then uh, there's this moment that I've argued with uh, a couple of friends. What does it mean and, and how can it be interpreted? where he says, go to church to the people from the area. Go to church to the people from the area. For God created all men equal they know. And maybe that's a maybe that's a pathetic lie that is sold to you by the church. But to me, that's the death of common feeling and common yeah. spirituality and a common identity. And that's what Weller is lamenting, is that like, oh, I'm okay. We were all different. We all, we different stations, different lives. At the end of the day, we all went and we knew we were the same, but that's being killed in this era of britain mm-hmm. and that's why man in the corner shop will always remain my favorite jam song of all time and i don't have any better way of expressing that than just saying la 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 la
what he said for best entertainment as well. La 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 la. la. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, 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 just a syllable is better than any words. Yes, the the wordless chorus. Uh, Jeff Scott? Jeff described that tune perfectly. It's it is also one of my favorites. Likely to be in my five songs here at the end of the show. Dominic talked wonderfully about that's entertainment, which is another fantastic song. A lot of these notes have been taken. I do want to highlight Monday. Really like Monday. And the little trick, it starts with the chorus and then repeats the chorus. And so you, you sell it the first time, you sell it harder the second time in that beautiful melody. Oh, baby, I'm dreaming of Monday. I can't sing. But killer melody. I really like what Weller does with Monday and the way that song is, is constructed. Oh, Boy About Town's a good song, but I like the, the other mix better. There's a Peter Wilson... Yeah, the alternative version, which is much more gift-like with the horns, right? Yeah, that's that's the only other note I think I have on sound effects, which is, again, this this third in a string of really, really flawless records. Okay, you know, I have one last thing to say about it, which is that the one song that we haven't discussed from that really needs to be focused on is Set the House Ablaze, which is mm. uh, fire and fury and the future for the band. Actually, the future I wish they'd taken... You know, one thing we talked about in the beginning of the show is how uh, Jam was so deeply influenced by The Who. And whereas The Who, uh, you know, in the big mod rockist wars, the irony of The Who is despite Quadrophenia, they took the rockist route. Um, mm. The Jam took the mod route, so they went to R&B and Soul at the end of the day. Um, I'm very glad that they cut their way through a little bit of funk. Because Set the House Ablaze is one of the angriest, weirdest, and... Um, yeah, you know, I think the only thing that comes after it that reminds me of it is Precious on the next album. Yeah, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, and and but this one's far angrier because there's the, there's this this stomping beat. You do 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 do, and uh, from Fire, you get the um, I don't know how to explain the sound that comes off of this except to say that I'm surprised that three people managed to pull it off live. Yeah, I would only say that this is a song that actually feels, there's certainly lyrics. I mean, if you look at Going Underground, and it's, it has a very Cold War feel. The lyrics yeah. of this one could have been written yesterday Even worse. or today.
I mean, what that takes us to is this, this weird interregnum period, uh, 1981. So they put out Funeral Pyre, which I think is a pretty good song. I mean, I don't know if you like it that much, uh, Dom. I, I, I love the big pounding drum beat, although I'll admit they remixed it better for Snap. But it, it is. It's not know, bad. It, to me, it, it's not bad. It, rem- it belongs with uh, Eaton Rifles. It feels like it could even have been an offcut from the concept album that went into Setting Suns. Yeah, I mean, you've got that, and then like, uh, I guess, I guess we have to address this. Absolute beginners is the Grace. moment. W- well, okay, this is the, also the moment where you sense something is going very yeah. different with this band. Because- this is the templates now emerging for Weller's eighties music. With the- okay, so uh, and all we need to do is <laughs> hit the clip. Big horns, big stomp, big uh, click-tracked percussion. Uh, Absolute Beginners makes it on Moxie. And I know that Dom said he yes, thinks it's a little too stiff. You know I what? love it. I love it. It's so tight. and it, It's so uptight that that's what I like about it. I was listening it to sound, that. It sounds like Madness. You must have learned a lot. Yeah, from of course it sounds like Mad- Madness being a great early 80s British group that, you know, I don't know how many people here are listening. About, are about three. About three people uh, in the people, U.S. By people Madness. know our house. But, they, but they also inherit this wonderful observational slice of life songwriting thing. So you know, here's I guess the point, but Dom, I, you're probably better equipped than any of us to talk about Northern Soul and what right. it means to this last part of the jams period. Okay, Northern Soul, I'm okay. just gonna set it up. It's just like, guess what? People who were in the north of Britain really liked R and B too. <laughs> it's a it's a cult within a cult, is what it is. Yeah, sub, a sub sub subculture. Sub subculture. You know, as, as I was saying, the original uh, mod thing, which was an early sixties thing, by the by the mid sixties broke into several directions, and you can see it. Some of them became kind of back to the land hippieish types, as Steve Marriott and, and the Small Faces went. And in the north of England, that's not going to wash. Life there was still heavily industrial <laughs> and and harsh. Um, and very much working class industrial. And so the, the mod culture of going dancing and getting pilled up at the weekend and dancing all night continued. And as people weren't making new mod rock records that were really compatible with that, they got further and further into soul imports, black American music, proto disco stuff even. And, and there, there's a wonderful movie actually called Northern Soul, which shows very well how this lifestyle ran and has an incredible soundtrack. These are some of the best, hardest, as they would say up north, hardest soul tunes ever made for dancing to. 
and a town I, I just think it's funny. I just think it's very, very funny that Dexy's Midnight Runners, which is a band that Americans only associate with the incredibly Irish song "Come On Eileen," was like one of, one of the hardest embodiments of true Northern soul, which is why that guy went on to work. On yeah, the they were the the also the people who did Gino. Which right. was about Gino Washington, who, who was who was an American singer who's he's still alive, I think, actually in Britain. Yeah. Um, who who was like a totem of the Northern Soul movement. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of stuff in Dexy's Midnight Runners songs, and they're from around the same time, early '80s, talking about dancing all night and, and traveling around with your your possessions in a bowling ball bag, which apparently was a thing that you did for Northern Soul because you had to carry your dancing shoes into the dance hall with you. And and the mecca of Northern Soul was the uh, Wigan Casino. Wigan is a uh, heavily was a heavily industrial town between Manchester and Liverpool, and became a kind of chronically unemployed place in the nineteen eighties. George and Orwell the, wrote a pretty famous piece yeah, about it. It's real right. It's where Orwell went when he wanted to find the English working class. He went to Wigan Pier, which is the inland canal. By the way, it's not on the seashore. It's an inland canal linking uh, Liverpool and Manchester. So. The double A-side single that the Jam put out in February 1982, which goes to number one in England, is A Town Called Malice, which is basically a Northern Soul single. And the rhythm section are within their bounds, as it were, because it's a stomper. And the bass line is basically You Can't Hurry Love it's, by the Supreme. Exactly. The, the rhythm section is within the bounds of Detroit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's straight and the, the, Motown and nothing yeah, yeah. but... So they can do that, and they do it very nicely, and it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And the title, A Town Called Malice, is, of course, a play on the Neville Shute novel, Town Called Alice. Which, it's all, America, which all Americans know, I might point out. It's one, oh, of, the, yes. one, of, one of our – we still read it in ninth grade. Every child is assigned it. So, like, it, this is what I mean when I say, like, huh. these songs and the references they make are impossibly obscure to America. Well, I'm glad that one comes through. And, again, A Town Called Malice is, is like Strange Town. It's it's about and this is I remember going on the road in England and um, you'd go up north or even into Scotland and you'd have to really watch yourself if you were out at night and with you know being uh, you know from the south. Dude, it's straw some, dogs. I mean, I, I think yeah. I think of it as straw dogs. No, it was it was basically people. I mean, uh, you know, there's only two countries I've had throat slitting gesture made at me when in the <laughs> evenings, and, and one of them was in Scotland uh, after doing a gig. So um, you know, it it, it was. A time still when there was uh, the tradition of drinking and fighting was very much alive, and and um, it was it could be a really hairy place, England, still in the 1980s and into the 1990s. And a town called Malice is about that. And then this this represents sort of the final evolution of the jam, where Paul Weller is 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 I can't it's leaving the Beatles era, I suppose. But yeah. but the funny thing, it, it, these are about sort of the echoing references in Weller's uh, sort of artistic career. The Beatles themselves were so deeply influenced by soul R and B and Motown in in their early career. It defined everything they did that it felt like a sort of a natural evolution. 
and, and also very mod evolution because if, if you go back to the late 60s, uh, mod bands, go look at the small faces. They had no compunction whatsoever about covering some of these great bands. No. And, and so this is what gives us 1982's The Gift, which I know is probably not Scott's favorite album of the jams. It's not, in fact. I, I, um, there's a lot here I actually don't like. And I, I think, Jeff, you even said you like some of the kind of funkier, long-form, jammy stuff like Transglobal Express. Express. Yeah, and I don't it's, really... It's got a weird kind of robo-funk, British funk yeah. version. Northern Soul, right? I, but I, it's it's not authentic. No I, way. I, I don't like uh, what the planter's dream goes wrong with like, the yeah. steel drums and the horns. I'm not a big fan of that. Um there are a couple of things that are that are all right. I, I think Running on the Spot probably is my favorite track on the record. Um, just Two is the Five O'Clock Hero kind of goes back to that working class mm-hmm. motif that Weather has written about many, many, many times. Um, you know, right at the end, there's, there's got to be more to this old life than the scrimping and saving and creating of lists. Um, guy comes home, he's dirty, he's aching, he's drunk. He wants the living room beat to the TV sound, which is a great turn of a phrase. really good song uh, on the gif but you know dominic had mentioned we're on the last album the fact that weller's ambitions were sort of outpacing the rest of the band and i think those fissures are, are coming to the front uh, on the gift and i think there's a lack of continuity i think there's a lack of sort of a a, a shared i don't want to say shared commitment but you know a, a single face of 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 the jam you sort of have it fragmenting a bit in the way that yeah. Weather wants to work with his songs and do what he wants with these songs, and it's not what the other two guys necessarily want. No, he, to do he's with these changing songs. his musical language. That's mm. the thing. Um, you know, Precious. Once he takes out the sort of funk guitar, and I, I don't know, if Precious has wah wah on it, um, but I believe it certainly transcends. Oh, Precious, it goes to like eleven on the wall. Yeah, once you <laughs> take it up the that twelve-inch version, which I you're playing know. a wholly different kind of guitar. The guitar is a percussion instrument at heart, and once you play it with the wall, that's what you're doing, and that's very different from using it as a one-handed piano, which is the other way of playing the guitar, and that is the the Pete Townsend, Ray Davis, uh, Beatles end of uh, Paul Weller's writing. He uses the piano as a one-handed guitar with a bass line shifts underneath often a steady chord mm-hmm. totally different having a fixed uh, chordal center and lots of percussive guitar on top he's adopted a different musical language at this point i think Foxton gets it i think buckner buckler really troubles to get close yes. to it the drums yeah. are not good yeah. on this
And you can hear, in, you know, after the gift, the, the band breaks up and Weller forms a style council. And he, he uses, um, they're also white English musicians, but they're musicians whose prime musical language is soul and funk, uh, not rock music. And so they place the beats differently and they have a better understanding of what to do. And it is just one of those things, in a way, that you can hear it on the gift. And, and, and Scott, you have a point, the cracks are starting to show. But some of the songs, again, they're fantastic. I mean, The Bitterest Pill, I think, is, is a beautiful piece of writing. And The Bitterest three... Pill, by the way, just to clarify, The Bitterest mm. Pill I ever had to swallow is, uh, I, I think the band kind of realized in 1982, as this album was being recorded and toured, that it was the end. Mm -hmm. And that was where Weller said, all right, we're going to wind it down. Uh, other two guys didn't like that. They had no choice in the matter because no. guess no. who wrote the songs? Uh, Paul Weller did. And this was the first one he did as kind of their big, long, and almost preternaturally and weirdly pre-planned farewell tour. Yes, he told them uh, when they were recording the album in the summer of 1982. And, and then they announced it was over in October. Um, and, and then they toured. Um, and finally played their last on in December uh, 1982. So the whole thing had this sort of tragic and, and, and bitter pill overhang. With um, the inevitable Wembley gigs and all, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, the, all the, the hero worship that must yeah, be. Yeah, and, and, and look, the three singles, Town Call Malice, um, Bitterest Pill and Beat Surrender, two of them were number one, in which you had to sell a mountain of records to have a number one single in Britain in the early 80s. And Bitterest Pill got to number two and was kept off by, wait for it, Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. The You know, that's Paul Weller. There is no justice in this world, you know, that it would happen. But really, where do you go from that? You're, every single you have is a massive hit. You're undoubtedly the best. And you've, you've been together with these other two guys from, since childhood, basically. And you've and, voluntarily dissolved. Yeah, and you've reached the end of what you can do in this format. And and they had, and he did the right thing, I think. I genuinely do. And, and I'm glad that they haven't reformed. Um, I think that would be a terrible thing. I'd, I'd go and see it, but it wouldn't be as good. I mean, um, this is the thing. So, like, so Weller said, and, and we'll we'll have like a brief moment. To, by the way, before I talk, before I move on and talk about sort of like the tail end, do you, Scott, do you have any further thoughts on the gift? I think I got to everything I wanted to say. Actually, so "Beat Surrender," which is the yeah. final "Beat Surrender," which is the final jam single. I mean, this is what I mean when I say there's something almost weirdly uh, prepossessing about the way Paul Weller sort of planned his band's career i mean he got everyone else to agree to like okay we're gonna wind it down we're gonna wind it down in a way the beatles never managed to do i think he was haunted by that like the way the beatles all broke up and crap and by the way the jam also multiple like you know bad feelings bad blood afterwards nobody really wanted to do this except weller at the time Weller was right when he says beat surrender and he's like come on boy come on girl so come to the beat surrender all the things i care about are packed into one punch all the things i'm not sure about sorted out at once and he even 
manages to sort a curse word into a number one hit single, which is just one of those things you could do in the early 80s <laughs> on the radio, uh, as long as you had a thick enough accent. Um, but this is the moment where you realize that the band had to end, and I'm actually glad in retrospect it ended as messily and as gracefully as it did. I think, so yeah, I, you're you're talking about the sort of mod self consciousness, the self consciousness. Yeah. So like we gotta yeah. we gotta we gotta wind down in a way that doesn't embarrass ourselves in retrospect. It was they finished in style, and and they I can understand in- how the others felt because he basically made you know saying you'll never work with anyone as good again because they couldn't because they were perfect for him. But uh, the thing in is, seventy-seven. And the thing is, I don't know how much of a fan you are of the Style Council, but my friend, <laughs> Paul Weller, never worked with anyone as good as Gen either. And that's the thing. Like I, you know, Style Council has some fine songs. A few. I've just never gotten into their. I'm biased. Songs. I'm biased. I mean, you, I you with your acid jazz background. I yeah. Think and and this, also- this was the fun. <laughs> this was the final. This was the final fracture point I was waiting for on the episode. You know what? Mm. Here's the funny thing, Dom. You might not realize this, but uh, we here on Political Beats had a, a person who was willing to cover Style Council. For six years prior to this, almost. Yes, but they didn't want to do the jam, and I found that perverse. So you and I come from different points of view. Explain to me Paul Weller's afterlife. All right, this is purely autobiographical. Pitch me me. a biography of Weller. I'll I'll tell you. Dom, Um, pitch pitch me on the later adventures of the Style Council. Jam and Style Counselor kind of person. 
Um, the reason is, is this, um, and it's basically autobiographical because I, I came out of, of, of jazz. That was the first music I heard. Right. So when Weller started getting into Curtis Mayfield and Marvin Gaye and 70s soul music um, and bringing in horn sections and percussion, um, this, in other words, becoming the other kind of jazz modernist, um, it made total sense to me. And he's like, uh, finally, this man's speaking my language. No, he wasn't. Right. No, I, I grew up listening to rock radio as well. So, I mean, you know, the, the, yeah, I, right, I, right. I, I yeah. feel very passionate about the jam, but I love what he was doing with the Style Council. And generationally, he played a huge influence because um, in the in the 1980s, there was, we called it Rare Groove at the time, which was basically you go to the Hampton Market in London, a sort of hippie-ish market. And there was a man there who'd sell you cassettes of compilation tapes of 70s soul and funk or northern soul mixes and we all listened to this stuff as well as listening to rock music and so on and we wouldn't have done that without weller really because he he actually led the way and 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 received a great deal of criticism i was always wondering why it was that he could have hired any rhythm section he wanted he could have gone to the u.s and hired the meters for goodness sake, or, or Chic, or someone like that, and played with them. And instead, he played with English musicians. I can understand why in the sense that he is himself very English, but yeah. I think it would have lifted them. The other thing I would say, he paired up with a songwriter for the first time, which is uh, Mick Talbot, mm -hmm. uh, who had also been in the mod band. And I'm biased here, because Mick is a friend of mine, and we work together. But I love his songwriting. Yeah. My ever-changing moods, things like that. Uh, uh, this is a the, by the way that's that is by far their best song. <laughs> I've always loved the ever changing moods, but I've just never been sold on the rest of the whole thing. Yeah, it's hit and miss in the sense that um, they, he's trying something new out, and there are limitations in it. And as I said, I think he could have gotten some better musicians. Um, but Weller was, was his last album, The Star Council, which is completely overlooked, sort of closes the circle because it's a house music album. Are we talking about the unreleased album that was only released on that complete box set? Yeah, which yeah, of, yeah, of, yeah. Which, of course, I have because, yeah, I'm that devoted, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yes, exactly. So, well, again, was Style Council were a decade or more ahead of the curve because they broke up in 89, 90, just as house music and uh, blowing up to take yeah. off. Yeah, and we recognize this music. New Order to really popularize it with technique. You're really, but in, it may be wider Happy in Monday the US. Yeah. New Order, yeah. But, but in Britain, we got it immediately because it fitted into this mod tradition if you listen to black american dance music uh, in, in and go dancing all night and that's and, what and house music and, and raving and was vacationed in ibiza yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. right we really did that and, and so and weller had paved the way so it's very hard for me to separate the critical judgment of style, style council records from the autobiographical historical aspects because i don't know <laughs> if any of this would happen the first record that came out on the acid jazz label which was founded by a man called eddie pillar whose mum, incidentally, had been the president of the Small Faces fan club in the 1960s. <laughs> and, and Eddie um, became one of these second-generation mods. I think, actually, he's in Quadrophenia as one of the extras because they actually got real mods to, to fill the crowd scenes out. Eddie Pillar set up this label, and the first thing they recorded was with Paul Weller under the name of King Truman. And then I think the record label, Polydor, found out and, and, the, and the single had to be scrapped. So acid jazz and this whole revival of, and mixing of styles that occurred in Britain in the 90s would never have happened without Weller. And um, indeed, the, the influence of this has spread to the US even more slowly because that's what happens. You know, someone said about punk broke in the US in 1990. 
which is all right. Um, in, in like 2007 or eight, I think it was, a friend of mine got married in Las Vegas. So I went over and we met up in the evening and we're on the roof, the rooftop bar of this hotel. And, um, the music in the background that my friend Gary, the bass player, who, who was an original second wave mod as well, said, Oh, that's me. And, and we realized that this music, which had been played 10 or 15 years earlier, was now becoming the ambient soundtrack for a certain kind of lifestyle, you know, American consumption. And so, again, that's well out of two removes. None of this would have happened. You wouldn't hear this mixture of break beats and funk and soul yeah. and bits of rock music. All the, you know, Wella wrote the book on that in the 1980s. And I think one thing the Style Council does suffer from is 80s production. It sounds a bit yeah. tinny, tinny to modern ears. You know? That's what kills me about it. They're actually, I, I, you go into, you dive into the depths of the Style Council, and maybe we'll, maybe one day we'll do an episode. But you dive into the depths, and there are great songs there. There's great melodic ideas there. Well, Jeff, I, I think I've actually started the episode on the Style Council, but I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you may return. I, we might want to bring you back for the damned instead. For oh yeah, but but the point is, is that there's good music there. But you're right, the '80s production ticks kill me. They kill me. I mean, there are bands that's Tears for Fears who who once very volubly declared, "Kick out the style, bring back the jam." They survived '80s production better than Style Council did, in my opinion. That's only my thought, though. I think you're right. I think there were certain choices that Weller made that don't reflect well now. Now, I, I already warned Scott, Scott off in advance about Style Council, so I know he has zero opinions about this. <laughs> That's true. So, I just so, got to the jam. I certainly haven't got to Style Council yet. You could be like a test subject, Scott. <laughs> you come to this with fresh ears. And and one, day, one day we will all reunite and we will sow the seeds <laughs> of love, okay? So, Scott, you want to bring us home? Uh, indeed I do. There is the Political Beats look at the music and career of the jam. And a little bit of style counsel. The part of the episode now where each of us give you the two albums you should own, the five songs you should hear from the jam. We start with our guest, Dominic Green. The floor is yours. You can give us your two albums and your five songs. Well, I'm going to actually go against the mod father himself on this because uh, <laughs> Weller's favorite album, I think, is Sound Effects. Yes. But I'm going to recommend that people get setting suns, uh, partially because I'm biased and it has all this literary context because you can start talking about John Betjeman and Evelyn Waugh, and also because it has Eaton Rifles, uh, which to me is a song that you know you just can't do without. The second album I'm going to nominate, and this is cheating in a bit, but it, I feel it's justified, is Snap the double album posthumous collection, which was put out, which includes the best of the non-album singles. It's rather like the blue and red double albums that came out yeah. after the Beatles broke up. To really get the cream of the jam, as it were, you've got to have Snap. And you can continue with your five songs. Go ahead. Right. Well, my five songs are going to be all very obvious, I'm afraid. They are Strange Town, Thickers Thieves, That's Entertainment, Going Underground, and A Town Called Malice. All right. My... No, no, imagine, no imagination there required, that's, really. There's no rhyme nor reason to what songs be listed on these uh, these five songs, so no no worries. My, my two albums, All Mod Cons, which I think is their, is their best, and I really went back and forth on this quite a bit. In the end... I give the edge slightly to Setting Suns. I think All Mod Cons, Setting mm -hmm. Suns, those two albums back-to-back, -back, those are the two albums from the jam you should own. 
in terms of the five songs you need to hear, very difficult choices here, especially for someone like me, new. I haven't lived with these songs for a long time. But the five songs I think that you should hear from the jam in the crowd, I think is the best song that the jam recorded. It is a song that will live with me for as long as I'm listening to music. I think it is just an unbelievably great, great song. Uh, Billy Hunt, which follows directly afterwards on All Mod Cons. Give me both those. I think those are both very important in the story of the jam. Seesaw, that B-side that I talked about from Eaton Rifles, is on my list of five. Wasteland, fantastic song, great set of lyrics from from Weller. And then, as I promised Jeff, I'd pick him up. I also think Man in the Corner Shop is one of their greatest songs, and I will include it on my list of five. Thank Jeff, you. over to thank you. you for, yes. Thank you for doing that, Scott, because that is, of course, one of my favorite jam songs of all time, and yet I will not be able to name it in my top five because I'm a cheater. I'm a cheater and a co-host, so I have uh, universal rights to cheat. I will agree with Dom. Get Snap. And by the way, I'm going to be that who tells you, don't get Compact Snap because the songs they edited out are actually some of the band's best. But if we're talking albums, it's clearly, to me, all mod cons and sound effects. As for the five songs, oh, God help me. I don't even know what I'm going to say. Well, I'm going to try to choose five songs that aren't on those two albums I named. So I'm going to go with In the City from their debut. All right. Big punk energy. Young kids just thrilled to be in the city and realize that there's a world outside of the doldrums that they had grown up in in the suburbs. Then you have Strange Town, one of the greatest non-album singles of all time. You have When You're Young, uh, which is a, a, a single about the lies that have been sold to you as a youth. Going Underground, another non-album single, not from these records, about man basically the way i feel about the world uh i'm not gonna join uh i, I will do my thing and uh, if you don't want what i want then i'm i'm free to walk away finally um i would say from their later period uh, i'd say wasteland as uh, a song from setting suns that i think is magnificent and even if i feel it's sabotaged somewhat by its uh, production, I think the lyric and the melody still there are one of the finest things Paul Weller ever accomplished. Uh, I know I'm a cheater, so I will cheat once again, and I'll, I will say that Absolute Beginners is a great song um, because it has that big horn funk sound that the jam would introduce in their later era. But at the end of the day, if I wanted to summarize anything this band meant, to you, I would say you take the last 10 seconds, 30 seconds of Strange Town. That's the jam. That's everything that we're supposed to be. I'm amazed how little overlap there is. I mean, we've nominated 15 or, in fact, 16 tracks, and there's hardly any overlaps between the lists. This was a That's great quality, group. right? Six albums. You can buy the complete works on a five That's... CD box set. Yep. It's that compact. <laughs> Bring it up, 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 bring it up
There we go. It's the jam on Political Beats. We thank our guest, Dominic Green, historian, columnist, used to be a musician, as he proved to us today, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, columnist for the Washington Examiner and the Jewish Chronicle, on Twitter, at Dr. Dominic Green, Dr. Dominic Green. Dominic, what a thrill, a pleasure to have you here on the show. Thank you. This has been incredible. I never thought that I would get to talk about the jam at such length. And there's more we could say, but I mean, it's truly, thank you so much. Jeff, one off your list, and we might try to squeeze in one more in this month of June. We'll see how things go. Yeah, we're hoping to do that. We've been a little lax lately. Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. I'm there, at Scott Bertram, S-C-O-T-B-E-R-T-R-A-M. We invite you to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us, help the show stay ad-free. Lower level, entry level, mid-level, and our upper level best friends, Get the early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content stuff, remastered episodes, playlists, and more. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes when they come out. Check us out on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Join the conversation there at Political underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.